morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's Friday. That's all that matters in my head. It's Friday. I've got a great weekend ahead of me. I'm taking my, I'm taking my boy on Sunday to the Royal Festival Hall to see the London Philharmonic Orchestra play like kids' music. I don't know what music they play, it's for kids. How, ex- how middle class is that? Let's be honest. How middle class is that? Very, very elitist. Um, so that'll be fun. Anyway, lots on the show this morning, including concerns over standards of care at a Milton Keynes hospital after the death of a child. Bus fares to rise in beds, hearts and bucks. Is it costing too much for you to travel? And we speak to the person who either vandalised or improved the Milton Milton Keynes concrete cows. Do you love or loathe the revamp? Is he a hero or is he a villain? You can get in touch via the email, 3cr at bbc.co.uk. You can text 81333, starting your text 3CR, or you can give us a call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. The parents of a one-year-old girl who died at Milton Keynes Hospital have raised concerns about whether a review into the care of seriously ill children will prevent further deaths. A coroner has called for action in the paediatrics department following the death of Mia Elcock last October. It's not the first time that that department has been criticised. Our reporter, Jessica Cooper, has been following the story. Morning, Jessica. Good morning. What happened to Mia? Well, Mia was a a 13-month-old little girl from Little Hallward near Milton Keynes. Um, And she was said to be in quite good spirits on her dad's birthday last year, on the 23rd of October. She helped her dad blow out the candles on his birthday cake. Mm. Um, But the inquest heard that, sadly, 12 hours later, she had died. And that was because she had developed these breathing problems. She was admitted to hospital with what her parents said was a racing heartbeat. They said they could feel it racing so fast within her body. Um, She was taken to A&E, but that was closed due to flooding. And later on, it was close to flooding. Yes, it was. And then we heard in the inquest about the fact that there'd been a small explosion reported. Ceiling tiles had um, come down in part of A&E because the flood had had come down from an upper floor. Mm. And the decision was made to temporarily close A&E. Wow, Okay. But her mum and dad were taken to the walk-in centre, who then referred her on to the paediatrics department. So she probably went to where she would have done if she'd gone through okay. A&E. Um, and so she went to the paediatrics and she was diagnosed with this form of pneumonia. But what we heard is that it would have been practically impossible for the staff to know that she had this underlying heart problem. And um, she had a growth on a valve in her heart. Okay. Um, but the coroner did find that there was a failure on the part of the clinical staff to treat her. At one point, she could have been intubated, a process that would have helped her to breathe. But that point was missed but he said that he couldn't really be satisfied that that failure alone contributed to her death and so really no matter what treatment she was given this was an extremely rare condition and she eventually died from acute heart failure on her dad's birthday yeah, well, the day after, because it was after. the early hours, How yeah. How sad is that? What are the hospital going to do now? Well, the coroner, um, Tom Osborne, made this rule called a 43 rule, and that is made to prevent further deaths. He asked the chief executive of Milton Keynes Hospital to carry out a review of how seriously ill children are cared for, and he suggested that they should possibly be looking at how that care happens out of hours. 
and he basically just was wanting to make sure that what needs to be done is done. He said that when ill children go into hospital, they need to be recognised how ill they are mm. and the adequate steps need to be taken to care for them. Um, Mia's parents spoke to me after the, the verdict was recorded, Simon and Kirsten. They welcomed the 43 rule, but they did say that they have reservations. When Harry Mould died, they put in supposed to put in a high-dependency pathway and it was that very pathway that didn't occur in Mia's situation, which was the perfect situation for it to occur. The hospital has undertaken what's called a root cause analysis in an effort to to understand the the facts around uh, what happened in Mia's case. And we've tried to engage throughout with them in that process and we have found that that has just not happened. So we are unfortunately left in a situation where we have little confidence in the the manner in which they're going to, to deal with these issues and that potentially this could happen as it's happened in the past again. So as the family said there, they had Mm. asked to be involved in this internal investigation and they said that they found the organisation to be unwilling to learn and they said that it sadly once again demonstrated the fact that children have continued to die at this hospital. But in response to what we heard throughout the inquest, Martin Weatherill, um, the medical director at Milton Keynes Hospital, um, told me that changes have already been made since Mia's death and he said that they are continually making improvements. Um, £750,000 has been spent on children services at the hospital they now have more nurses they have four high dependency beds and they have since and uh, the beginning of this year opened a new children's a and e department so now when children go into a and e they mm. have their own specific area the parents there mentioned harry mold yes so harry mold is um another little boy whose inquest uh, we reported on last december mm. and now he died in the paediatrics or he was treated in the paediatrics unit and he died at a different hospital but he died in 2009 and the coroner found in his case that um, neglect contributed to his death and so as a result of his death the hospital made quite a few changes and part of that was the high dependency pathway Mm. so this is what patients who are particularly ill and need extra observation are put on this pathway and the idea is um they get the on-call consultant is told they're on this pathway they get um usually a heart monitor and that they get the specific notes to say that they're on high dependency but mia didn't get the heart monitor is that right no mia didn't get the heart monitor the on-call consultant wasn't told and there weren't the notes so all three of those things that should have happened as a result of another child dying at the hospital, didn't happen. Whether they would have made any difference because her condition was so rare, Mm. we can't know. And so I asked Mr Weatherill, the the medical director, whether he thinks that that pathway is actually making any difference. I think the pathway is working. And and when a child or indeed an adult is ill, the the, the first priority is obviously to the patient and and to do the, the paperwork later. And I fully accept that the paperwork in this case wasn't done. In terms of whether a heart monitor would have been useful, we heard from the experts, the cardiologists, the pediatric cardiologists and the pediatricians that a heart monitor in this particular case would not have been helpful. But each of those beds has on the wall uh, a full uh, monitoring equipment, including cardiac monitors. You make changes so that they're followed, and if they aren't followed, what's the point of making the changes? No, well, that's one of the points that um, HM Coroner made, and that is one of the points that um, we should be looking into. So the hospital now has um, 56 days to respond to this rule from the coroner, the Rule 43, and they should then say what action they're going to take or what action they have already taken. Mm, yeah, what a sad story. Jessica Cooper, thank you very much. Uh, later on in the show, we'll hear more from uh, Mia Elcock's parents and Milton Keynes Hospital. 08459 455 555.
A little bit of Buddy Holly. You can't go wrong with a little bit of Buddy Holly, I always find. I love a bit of Buddy Holly. I'm flicking through the newspapers because I'm trying to... F- oh, my goodness, look at the state of Bill Wyman. I'm trying... There's a story somewhere which I found online, and I'll find it for you a little bit later on, but basically... Less and less of us as parents are reading bedtime stories to our kids. It's, stri- it's something like 42% of parents are reading one story a week to their kids at bedtime. Really? If you're a parent or a grandparent, isn't that one of the best things in the world, is reading bedtime stories? I was out all day yesterday working, doing this and had a load of other nonsense to do. I got home just in time. My little boy had been uh, bathed. I got home just in time to hide in his bed. So when he came in the bedroom, he's like, oh, daddy! I was like, yeah. And I spent half an hour lying, him, lying with him on the floor. He was naked. Do you want to put your pyjamas on? No. Okay. And we were talking about what he did in the day and what his favourite noise was. It turns out his favourite noise at the moment is a loud train. Uh, and then we got him dressed, he put braces on for some reason, got into bed and we read um, One Ted Falls Out of Bed and a book about aeroplanes. What a joy. It's the best thing. If you're a parent, can you call me up, please, and just let me know how many times a week do you read bedtime stories to your kids? Do you do it at all? Once, twice, every night? 08459 455 555 08459 455 555 How many times a week do you read bedtime stories to your kids? Now, last week we told you about the mysterious appearance of skeleton designs which have been painted on the famous concrete cows in Milton Keynes. Vandalism or work of art? 81333. Start your text 3CR. Vandalism or work of art? Well, this morning we can exclusively... I don't know if it is an exclusive. If you put it in, it makes it sound more exciting. It might not be, so don't sue me. But I'm going to say it again. We can exclusively reveal who did it. BBC Three Counties reporter Justin Dealey is on his way to meet the person. Justin, what can you say? Well, what I can say, I'm at Junction 12 of the M1 right now. I'm going to get myself moving uh, to Milson oh, Keynes. Oh, you're, you're better than that, Dealey. Yes, you're yes, better you're right. than that. Not you're much, right. but a bit. OK, uh, so I'm on the way to Milson Keynes. Uh, <laughs> we're off to meet somebody who goes by the name, Ian, of Pie Waste. Yes, let Sorry. me say that again. Pie Waste. Now, this is the man who has admitted to turning those lovely concrete cows in Milson Keynes into skeletons. Yeah. He painted them earlier this month, which we believe was on the 9th of October. The MK Parks Trust, well, they're not happy. They're saying that he's caused £2,000 worth of damage. But he says that he has a strong connection to the cows, which have been in place since the late 70s, mm. 1978. And he has good reasons for his artwork slash criminal damage. I'm off to meet this man, Mr Pie Waste, and we'll find out those reasons after seven o'clock. Justin, speak to you later on. Thank you, Ian. It's nice sending him out on these secret missions. I do like that. What do you think? Act of vandalism, or have they improved the cows? Loads of tourists have been to go and see them. 08459 455 555. And do you read bedtime stories to your kids? How many a week do you read? 81333. Start your text 3CR. Good morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. A couple of things we got out this morning. The concrete cows in Milton Keynes. Acts of vandalism or works of art. And how many bedtime stories, or how many times a week... Do you read bedtime stories to your kids or your grandkids? 
81333, starting your text 3CR, or give us a call. Now, if you travel on Arriva buses, then from this weekend, guess what? Yes, you can expect to pay more to get around. A single fare on some routes in Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire is increasing by as much as 40 pence. The company says it's because of the rising cost of fuel and the government has cut the bus service operators grant. Our reporter Justin Dealey has spoken to people in Luton travelling on the buses and asked them what they thought. Now Ron, the people you've been talking to about this, not happy at all are they? No, they're not happy and uh, I think uh, putting the bus price up is diabolical and for... um the journeys that they're making is so short, it's out of order. So you can see no reason whatsoever as to why they would increase the prices? No, I can't see any reason why they'd put it up at all. So it's not good value for money? No. Even now? Even now. Two stops, three stops. It's quite expensive. It is, really. I think a lot of people will, will group together, if possible, and get a taxi. It's cheaper. If there's three people, it's cheaper to get a taxi, you know, rather than waiting for buses, which maybe don't turn up sometimes. How often do you use these buses? Every day. So clearly you're not very happy about the increase at all, are you? No, I'm not. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Because I've got to drop my son every day to school. It's not affecting me only. It's affecting the whole community. Whoever is paying for the bus fare, it's affecting them. So if you're using this every single day, you're probably looking at at least an extra £2.50 a week, aren't you? Yeah. And over a year, some would say, well, it's only £2.50 a week, but over a year that built up. Yeah, I use £2.50 return every day. And just lastly, you mentioned about the community and how it affects them. Mm. Other bus users, again, are they equally as angry as you? Of course they are, because that's when you find that people don't come to town so often or they end up walking from wherever they're coming from to town. Their social life, actually, it will be cut off. They won't be coming so often to do their shopping or to do whatever they want to do, unless if they have to. So the knock-on effect could be that people could be walking the streets when they don't Mm. have to, Mm. and also business in the town, as far as you're concerned, that could suffer as well. Yeah, yeah, it can suffer as well, because people won't, won't be coming to do shopping as they would have come to do shopping every day. Well, Ariva will be joining us on the programme in about an hour's time. Uh, joining us now, though, is Chris Dampure from the Stevenage Bus Users Group. Morning, Chris. Morning, what's, morning. What's your reaction to the price increase? Well, it's a bit of a problem because, um, obviously, the actual increases are um, the, it's the 20% loss they have in the government fuel support duty, which they're losing, mm. and they had the three pence per litre increase the government tax has gone up. That's their problem. The, uh, do you want the figures, actually? Give us a couple. Don't, don't dazzle yeah, us with too many uh, numbers. It's only three. Go on. £1 to £2.70, they increased by 10 or 20 pence. Yep. 280 to 450 by 10 to 30 pence. Yep. And £4.60 and above is 20 to 40 pence. But there's no increase in the day ticket. The seven-day ticket is still a four-weekly ticket. And the 10% um, online discount they're giving to mobile and internet is still staying. OK, so, so there is some good news in this. Yeah. yeah. Do you not think... Is it unfair, though, that these increases are being passed on to the passengers? Um, I think if they're making massive profits, yes, it's a problem there. Well, well, is it, the big worries me is this 20% government just the, the, losing that discount on their fuel. I think that's where the biggest hit is. Possibly the 3P could argue about that. 20% is quite a bit. It's mm. one fifth. Mm. One fifth. Is, and they're losing on their petrol. Is this going to have a, an impact on Stevenish? You think that people... I mean, listen, we're talking about 40 pence. It doesn't sound like a lot. If you're using that bus a couple of times a day, every day, it can add up, can't it? 
Okay, if you're using just paying single fares, but you can, of course, get your day tickets in the areas, which obviously, um, for example, in Steamies, the day ticket costs £3.40. You can travel around all day, the whole day, from yeah. 6 o'clock in the morning to midnight. £3.40, and that's not going up. Chris, thank you very much. Chris Dampiot from the Stevenage Bus Users uh, Group there. We'll be speaking to Arriva a bit later on and finding out what they've got to say on the matter. If you want to give us a call on that, uh, it's the same number as it always is, 08459 455555. You can text 81333. Call 08459 455555. 08459 455555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Quite a bit coming up in the next half an hour of the show. The BNP leader Nick Griffin's tweets are being investigated. I'll tell you what he said about a gay couple uh, in a few minutes. And it's a year since families were evicted from Dale Farm, and we find out what they're doing now. Um, there's been a report out today, it's in one of the papers, uh, that says that, that hardly any of us read bedtime stories to our kids anymore. 42% of parents only read one bedtime story a week. One a week? What? I do it every night. Or my wife does it every night. Someone does it every night. Two stories minimum, three at a push. The other night, the boy got five because he'd been he'd been a good boy all day. He got five. I made sure they were short. Let's not go crazy. Um, Jen from Houghton Regis has texted in eight one three double three, starting her text three CR. Um, when my three children were young, I read bedtime stories every night. What a joy! Now my son and daughter-in-law read stories to my granddaughter, five, who's five, taking it in turns to read her choice of three. I volunteer at a local school, and I find it sad that some children miss out on this as parents don't make the time. How long does it take you, really, to read a, a few bedtime stories? Could you let me know? How many times a week do you read bedtime stories to your kids? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Now, I saw this story taking place uh, last night. It's incredible. Police were investigating comments made by the leader of the BMP, Nick Griffin, on Twitter, which appeared to call for protests outside the home of a gay couple. The comments came after Michael Black and John Morgan were awarded damages yesterday. A court had ruled that the owner of a bed and breakfast on the Buckinghamshire border had discriminated against them by refusing to allow them to stay in a double room. Michael and John spoke to Roberto Peroni on Drive Time last night. When we got there... um she sort of checked that we booked a double room with a double bed. We said yes, and she said it was against her convictions to allow us to stay, uh, to which I think we were both completely surprised. She has said a couple of times now that she, if she had two single rooms, uh, she would have let us stay in two rooms, which, of course, we wouldn't have been happy with. No, I mean, it would be quite insulting. Uh, yeah, it's a heterosexual couple perhaps living together for years, had turned up and she'd said, you can't share a room, it would be insulting for them and it, was, it would have been insulting for us. So she wasn't prepared to let us stay, even though uh, I'd made it clear that she might be breaking the law. So uh, I asked for the deposit back, which she gave me straight away, and we left. Our reporter, Gavin Lee, is following developments. Gavin, tell us what's happened and what law has been broken by Nick Griffin, if any. Yeah, really interesting, isn't it? Uh, this all came shortly after this this case we've just been hearing about from from John and Michael. There, both awarded one thousand eight hundred pound each in damages against this Berkshire B and B, which wouldn't let them stay in a room specifically with a double bed. So the the argument was was following that would they stay in a single or not? But the judge ultimately ruled that this was discrimination and that a heterosexual couple wouldn't have been given the same treatment. So shortly after that, Nick Griffin starts to make comments on Twitter about the case and certainly comments in on in his name. Anyway, seems to ask his 
followers to send him the couple's address. In fact, this is the these are the specific comments that mm. uh, he starts to make. He's, he's talking about um, this particular case, and he is quite actually vociferous, I think, in his view here. Uh, I'll go on to exactly what law he could be breaking in a minute. Mm. But he says, so, Messrs Black and Morgan, a British justice team will come up to your, to Huntingdon, give you a bit of drama, say no to heterophobia, and just before that he's talking about um, basically asking if the people want to send this address. Uh, it says, we'll hold a demo for rights of all homeowners, gays included, to rent or not to rent rooms to whomsoever they wish. So the specific actives, Communications Act, Section 127, 2003, which says if there's a public electronic communication network, including, of course, Facebook and Twitter, then if you use that to send a message of a menacing character, that's a criminal offence. Mm. Uh, also, grossly offensive messages which are obscene uh, or indecent as well are included. So that's what the police have got to look at. And he gave out an address. And I don't know if it's their address or not. I don't really care. But he also gave out a specific street address, didn't he, in the, in the tweet? Yeah, certainly. That's the allegation and these comments that have come from his name, yeah. And, and the police are, are looking into to it. They've also suspended his Twitter account. Interesting because, um, you know, his tweets are no longer visible now. Yes. So we can't see some of this information. It's not clear who asked for this suspension as well. And, and what, you know, we've heard, I suppose, from the one side, um, with people like the human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell and Stonewall saying specifically they believe Nick Griffin should be arrested. They believe that uh, Michael Black and, and John Morgan have every right to uh, have been in contact with the police about this and that, you know, they potentially are under threat by these comments. There's something tacitly intimidating here. Uh, there has been a statement from the BMP attempting to justify this to saying that freedom of speech is what they believe in, mm. the rule of in the, individual in the individual in their home. Also, it would defend the rights of a homosexual B&B owner to turn away heterosexuals at their premises. Gavin Lee, thank you very much uh, I indeed. I saw the tweets last night and I saw someone do a lovely tweet saying let's uh, fight back against giving out this address by sending that gay couple Christmas cards. Which I thought would be <laughs> was kind of a nice way of, of getting around it. Uh, it's incredible. I don't particularly want to, um, to, to talk specifically about Nick Griffin. You probably have your own opinions on him and, uh, and what he did and if it's going to be investigated by the police, I don't want to know. I wouldn't mind kind of asking the similar thing that Roberto mentioned last night on his show. Um, it's been it's been proven that the uh, the, the the Christian woman um, discriminated uh, against the gay couple by not letting them stay in the same room. But uh, so what I want to ask this morning is that the, is that the right decision? Do you agree with that decision? Do you have the right to decide who stays in your B and B in your hotel? Should you have the right to stay uh, to decide who stays in your B and B? In your opinion, because obviously it's not the opinion of the law. In your opinion, was this Christian lady? In her, within her rights, to turn away this gay couple and say, do you know what? No thanks. Not under my roof. 08459 455 555. Should you have the right to turn away people from your B&B, from your hotel, because you don't approve of their sexuality? 08459 455 555 is the phone number. You can text 81333, starting your text 3CR. Speak to you after this. So, do you have the right to decide what goes on underneath your own roof? Do you? 08459 455 555. There'll be some of you who will agree. With the judge's decision that this uh, lady discriminated against the gay couple by not letting them share the same bed. Uh, and there'll be... Some of you think, no, hang on, whoa, 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 hang on a second. It's this lady's business. She can do what on earth she wants. She sets the rules. 
And if being gay is against her beliefs, then she should be able to decide. 08459 455 555. Do you have the right to decide what goes on underneath your own roof? 08459 455 555. Hey, this Saturday, not only is he um, an excellent reporter on this show, uh, he's also got his own show, Justin Dealey, uh, this Saturday, 9 till 12. He'll take you back to music from your youth, or maybe your middle ages, if you're you're a little bit older. He'll be looking at the UK and American charts from this weekend in 1970, plus Mick Hucknall and Kiki D. I like a bit of Kiki D. Pick their favourite musical memories. All this plus your chance to test the jukebox, which contains one million records. Uh, School's out this Saturday morning from 9 till 12 on BBC Three Counties Radio with Justin Dealey. Let's have a quick look at the front pages of the newspaper, shall we? The Daily Telegraph. 27 MPs let one home and claim for another. Um, uh, There's the picture of the Countess of Wessex. Do you remember her? I remember her. She was famous for a while, wasn't she? The Guardian. Doctors to face annual checks on competence. Uh, And I want to be a force for change. Exclusive interview of the first out gay boxer. Um, and there's George Galloway banging on about something there. Uh, the Times. Leaked Savile email puts BBC's defence in doubt. The BBC's stated reason for cancelling a Newsnight investigation into sexual abuse by Jimmy Savile has been cast into doubt by a leaked internal email seen by The Times. Um, and there's more on this energy tariff promise from David Cameron, which I was listening to yesterday. It D- doesn't sound, actually... As, as good as... He came out and said, oh, right, all energy companies, you're going to have to be forced to put people on the cheapest tariff. And I heard lots of experts yesterday saying, well, that just means they're going to increase the price of the cheapest tariffs. tariff. Thanks for that, David. Um, the Independent... Hang, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. The scientists who turned fresh air into petrol... We'll have some of that. I don't believe it for a second, but we'll have some of that. Uh, the Express, new chaos over your energy bill. Cameron fuels confusion over soaring prices. Uh, the Daily Mail blunder that cost Google £15 billion in eight minutes. Uh, the Daily Mirror, if they find Ben's bones, my life will be finished. Uh, this is um, the story about Ben Needham, who went missing 21 years ago, and police in Cos are div- digging up where they think he might be. Uh, and The Sun, mobiles can give you a tumour, court rules. And there's also a picture of a lady in her pants. There it is, it's the front page. Uh, she slept with someone, apparently. BBC Three Counties Radio. Lots to talk about this morning. Some light, some not quite so light. Asking uh, about when do you read your kids' bedtime stories? Do you read them? How many a week do you read? And also the uh, issue of this uh, gay couple that were turned away from a and b The law has ruled that the woman discriminated against them. But what do you think? Should you be allowed to decide what goes on under your own roof? 08459 455 555. Eddie's from Luton. Good morning, Eddie. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. What do you what's your take on this? Well, it, um, I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. I work for a recruitment company, I'm not going to mention the name. Nope. But the law of the land states that um, you can't have discrimination within the workplace. That They set this law out purposely for that. This woman's home is her home, but she, they all now decided to make this a business. So by that, she's abided by the laws of no discrimination in the workplace. What about uh, people who might say that her Christian beliefs... Um, d- d- say that homosexuality is wrong and she should be allowed to put her Christian beliefs above the law of the land. No, you're absolutely right, but then surely she should have weighed these options up and thoughts of her beliefs before she decided to open her home as a business to the general public. 
What do you think that we have too many laws protecting people, and that that, that, that some businesses should be allowed to make their own decisions about things? No, you're absolutely right. They, they should. And I think businesses have, have taken a lot of stuff away from them nowadays. But you've got, you've got to have the discrimination side of it because you just can't have that anymore. I mean, we're, we're in the 20th century. That shouldn't exist anymore. Eddie, Eddie I don't want to, you know, scare you. We're in the 21st century now. We're living in I, the future. I apologise. It's, it's 10 to 7 in the morning. <laughs> uh, tell me about it. Listen, I haven't got a clue. Eddie, listen, uh, thank you very much uh, for that. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call on that. Do you have the right to say what goes on under your roof? I guess is the basic question here. A little bit of Barry White. The most unsexy man in the world singing sexy, sexy songs. Uh, Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio, 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call. Now, all this week we've been talking about elderly care, with councils having to cut their budgets. What support is there for the older population? For those with Alzheimer's, there are therapeutic singing sessions, otherwise known as singing for the brain. Research shows that singing helps them communicate even if they can't speak very well. They're able to sing. Our reporter, Tony Fisher, went along to a session in Aylesbury. Jane Dalloway, you're the facilitator here. I am. Tell us, what does it bring for the people coming here, the people with Alzheimer's dementia? What does it bring? What does, how does it help them? Well, we've had a lot of feedback over time about when you have a diagnosis of dementia um, you find yourself very isolated friends that have had many for many years often find it very difficult to relate to you and sadly friendships can fall away so a big part of belonging to any group is the fact that they can actually um, make new friends and be in what we call a peer support service um, but it is more than just a sing-along because it taps into the emotional side of your brain we actually have observed people who are struggling with their speech. They are still able to sing. Bronnie, tell me about singing for the brain, coming here, these sessions. Well... Do you love, do you really enjoy singing, don't you? I, I do. Well, I, I, I'm a prof- professional singer, actually, in my early, uh, earlier days. And uh, so I've, I've always been singing. I, I love coming. I, 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 wait, I wait for today to come. John, what is it about the, the sessions coming here singing? What, what do you like about it? Well, it's mainly the business of singing because um, most of what I suppose I listen to the radio a lot, but I'm hearing loads of voices, which is all lovely stuff, but it's not as good as singing. Nothing quite equals the business of singing. And the only way to do that is to sing. And this is just a good place to come and do it. My name is Gladys. When everybody's together, it's lovely. A bit lonely at home. I look forward to coming. Having a good old natter with everyone. <laughs> Have you got a favourite song? All songs are good when other people are singing, when there's a choir, people round about singing, it's lovely. Tony Fisher there, fantastic. Patricia, uh, Patricia Birchley is the councillor in charge of health and well-being at Buckinghamshire County Council. She joins me now. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning, Ian. Can you give us an idea of the extent of the elderly care crisis in Buckinghamshire? Yes, let me say that um, Buckinghamshire has done detailed research which suggests that there will be a 70% increase in the number of older people needing social care by 2030. And we believe our Prevention Matters services could reduce this demand by up to a quarter. 
How, how would you do that? What, what's, what scheme have you got in place? Uh, Prevention Matters will support people with a long-term condition to get their needs met in the community. We hope it will reduce the need to go into hospital. Working with partners and the voluntary organisations will be very important. We are building informal networks to reduce isolation and to introduce older people to new services, helping them to maintain sociable and independent lives. What what are these new services? What, what, What things can they be expecting? Well, we shall have community practice workers who will accept referrals from GPs. Um, People may be experiencing challenges in their day-to-day living, which impact on their lives, such as loneliness. So we'll be putting them in touch with lunch clubs, maybe exercise classes, a whole range of uh, things which are happening in the community Mm. which they might just not know about. It's not going to work for everybody, these, these uh, schemes, are they? Because some people will need to go into care homes, whatever you do. The government says it's shifted £7.2 billion from the NHS budget into social care. It's not going to be enough, is it? It's, very, it's going to be very difficult to manage all these things in the future. And in Buckinghamshire, we estimate that the cost of care will rise by up to £42 million a year over this period. So we are urging government to enact the Dilnot proposal so that people will have more certainty about the cost of their care if they need it in later life. You recently met um, Care Minister Norman Lamb, I think. Are you convinced that that both he and the government are taking this issue seriously? Well, we certainly hope that they will, because we see a situation where adult social care for older people, which already takes 70% of the health and, so- and social care budgets, rising even further and absorbing even more of council taxpayers' money. So we have to urge the government to take this matter very seriously. I would guess as well that, that, that perhaps we're going to have to um, change as a society to, to tackle this. Change um, hearts and minds, yes, I uh, absolutely think so. I think the days when many people lived with their families in older age have moved on, and society has to be prepared. That is why the Dilnot proposals are so very important. People want certainty in their older age. They want to know what the costs will be and where they will be themselves, I think. Patricia Birchley, Councillor in Charge of Health and Wellbeing at Bucks County Council. Thank you very much indeed. 08459 455 555. We're asking this morning, how often do you read bedtime? stories and also in the light of this ruling yesterday that uh, the owner of a b&b discriminated against a gay couple um, by turning them away or saying they couldn't st- sleep in the same room should you be allowed to decide what goes on under your roof we've got a comment on uh, the facebook page if you go to bbc three counties on, on facebook you'll find it it's, it's they're all scattered around there um estelle says we have five kids blimey age six seven nine and ten our family bedtime reading book at the moment is Mr. Stink by David Walliams. Roald Dahl was... Roald Dahl. The naughty books, but cracking reads. Was a popular choice. The kids love story time, which we do with them, in addition to hearing them read and them having their own quiet reading time. Parents, bedtime reading, it's down. How often do you read to your kids? Good morning, Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Three minutes past seven, it's Friday. It's the freaking weekend, baby, I'm about to have me some fun. Well, I'm going to a haunted house tomorrow. To, to quote R. Kelly, our Lord R. Kelly, I'm going to a haunted house tomorrow, which I'm very, very excited about, and I'm going to go and be all middle class and take my boy to see some classical music on Sunday. Uh, lots coming up between now and nine o'clock. We've got harpists before the end of the show. Oh, yes! Oh, yes! You won't get that anywhere else. Got a harpist. 
But in the next hour, a review is ordered into how seriously ill children are cared for at Milton Keynes Hospital. Do you have the right to say what goes on under your own roof? And we reveal who turned the Milton Keynes concrete cows into skeletons. Was it vandalism or was it a work of art? 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Well, the parents of a one-year-old girl who died at Milton Keynes Hospital say they have little confidence a review into the care of seriously ill children will lead to change. A coroner has called for action to be taken to reduce further risks following the death of Mia Elcock. Mia died within hours of arriving at the hospital and was later found to have an extremely rare heart condition. Our reporter Jessica Cooper spoke to Mia's parents, Simon uh, Elcock and Kirsten McIntosh, after the verdicts about the care Mia received. I think the, the coroner did, uh, did indeed identify that there were alternative uh, forms of treatment that Mia could have received um, I think medicine is never clearly black and white um, however I think there were opportunities where perhaps intervention could have taken place earlier uh, and didn't um, this is this is something that um, you know clearly may have had a, an impact on Mia's survival. And the coroner mentioned about the, um, the section 43 um, which is going to be an investigation to make sure this doesn't happen again. He said he hopes that that was a tiny condolence and if anything could be taken away from this, it would be that you've gone through this inquest process to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Do you agree? Do you hope that that is the outcome? We do very much hope that is the outcome because we'd hate to think of any other parent to go through like this. But I guess we have some reservations in that under when Harry Mould died, they put in supposed to put in a high dependency f- pathway, and it was that very pathway that didn't occur in Mia's situation, which was the perfect situation for it to occur. Mm. I think equally the fact that the uh, the hospital has undertaken what's called a root cause analysis in an effort to to understand the the facts around uh, what happened in Mia's case and to to make proposals and recommendations that would enable them to to improve. And I think we've. Um, as, as Kirsten said, try to engage throughout with them in that process as is recommended under NHS guidance and we have found that that has just not happened. So we are unfortunately left in a situation where we have little confidence in the, in, in the manner in which they're going to, to deal with these issues um, and, and that potentially this could happen as it's happened in the past again. You mentioned, Kirsten, about the high dependency pathway and how that was developed after Harry Mould's death Mm. in an effort to make sure that the patients that need the most observation get it. We heard in the inquest that Mia didn't have a heart monitor on, the on-call consultant wasn't called, and that the notes for the high dependency pathway weren't filled out. So as far as you're concerned, has that high dependency pathway made any difference? For, for Maybe it does for other children. In Mia's, Mia's case, it didn't work at all. Well, the family are now planning to open a woodland in Mia's memory. The medical director at Milton Keynes Hospital, Martin Wetherill, says changes have already been made since Mia's death. There's been a huge amount of money and effort uh, put into the department in, uh, since January. Over three quarters of a million pounds been spent on it, improving the nursing with updated uh, uh, monitoring equipment for um, high dependency beds, which means that those beds are available for very sick children, complete with full monitoring one-to-one nursing uh, and uh, an intense uh, input from the uh, medical staff. 
Um, we've opened a, a children's accident and emergency department as part of our main A&E, which has proved very popular with the children and parents. Uh, and that uh, opened earlier this year and is about to go 24-7, so it'll be open the whole time. The hospital, I think, should be very proud of uh, the continuing improving improvements that it puts into place. Every case like this, very, very sad though this is, is an opportunity for us to look at what we're doing and can we improve matters, can we improve it further. Well, Mia's parents were given support by a group which has recently been set up locally called Mother's Instinct. The woman behind it is Joanne Hughes from Hitchin, whose daughter Jasmine died following treatment at the Lister Hospital in Stevenage and Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. In her case, the coroner found that her 20-month-old baby died of natural causes. Joanne's with me in the studio this morning. Morning, Joanne. Good morning. What? Can I just uh, make a correction? Then? Please do, yes. I actually had a narrative verdict too. In um, Just, just explain exactly what that means. Well, I, to me, it means that the coroner hasn't managed to um, rule natural causes. Right. That they've heard evidence which, which gives them cause to say that they have to say a little bit more about right. what went on with the circumstances leading up to the death. Mm-hmm. And certainly in my case, I felt that um, the um, narrative verdict left room for more investigation um, Sorry to look for into what that happened. One. That's okay. What's your reaction to the, the findings of the coroner's in, uh, in Mia's case? Um, I think, again, um, it, he's, he's not heard enough evidence to, to, to give a natural causes verdict. He's felt that he's, he's needed to say more and, and they've had a narrative verdict. Um, my understanding is that failings were identified. Um, he's heard insufficient evidence um, to definitely link that as a contributing factor to the death. Mm. But he's recognised that those failings that occurred um, are serious, serious enough to um, give a Rule 43. Um, and I know that myself, um, Harry Mould's mother, K- um, Kirsten Mears mm. um, and Simon Mears' parents, the great concern with all of this thing, of course, is what actually will change and, and will it make a difference? Now, I know they will look at guidelines and procedures, yeah. but what we'll be interested in is, is how they are implemented and how they make sure that the people working there follow them. Because recommendations, you mentioned Harry Mould, and, and yeah. recommendations were made after Harry Mould died, I think, was it last year? that that was or maybe a couple um, of years ago i can't yeah, remember the exact that, date. that was about two and a half years ago uh, now. and it has been suggested that that a lot of those recommendations actually weren't weren't followed through or, or weren't used as rigorously as perhaps was suggested yes and that's hugely disappointing mm. um to hear of course for for harry mole's parents and and for kirsten and simon to have found that those recommendations had already been made and and, and were not followed so are you unsure that, the, the, that these recommendations that have been made since Mia's passing, are, mm. are you worried that perhaps these won't get followed up? I am. Um, I think that's, you know, the, the fear that Mia's parents have too. Um, and I think that um, th- this is where change has got to happen, where hospitals aren't continually after every inquest saying, we've learnt from this, this is an opportunity for change, etc. Mm. And then producing change in the form of guidelines or procedures that then we find out aren't actually followed. We need to look closely at um, the training that goes on when these guidelines and procedures are, are implemented and, and that they're followed. I've got two little boys. I can't, you know, even the thought of, of, of losing them, it, it breaks my heart. But how difficult is it for you as a mother and a family to go through an inquest mm-hmm. like this and hear the details? I, mm-hmm. I can't begin to imagine what that's like. I think um, inquests are very matter-of-fact and that is incredibly difficult because it's such a personal and emotive um, subject for you. You have to hear things. Um, you know, your, your, your child is treated like a case 
um, rather than your little girl or your little boy um, who you remember. Um, I think particularly for people who find themselves in the situation that, that myself and me as parents were in, where you've trusted in um, the medical institution and you feel that they've failed, an inquest puts you in another situation where you're having to trust again in professionals to look into what's happened and come up with the right answers. And it can be very, very stressful having to, having to you know, go into mm. a situation like that again. Um, it's, it's very frightening. Um, it delays your grief. Um, and it and it definitely brings extra trauma because you're you're waiting for something else horrible to happen to have to go through this inquest. Mm. You feel that you're not getting answers. You try to engage with with the NHS departments, and for whatever reason, they find it very difficult to engage with parents until after the inquest. So you're so you're waiting almost to find out what it is exactly that you're processing, as far as the circumstances around your child's death, and it doesn't. Um, allow you to have an, an, a, a normal grief process it's also very isolating mm. you, you find that there are very few of your friends and family who have been through an inquest process and fully understand exactly what it involves and, and what you're going through on a day-to-day -day basis so it's, it's very very hard tell me about mother's instinct what is that um, mother's instinct is a um, group that i've set up with with two main aims really one is to support other people that are going through um, what we went through because as i said it is so isolating um, and very difficult for people to understand who haven't been through it and what helped us get um, to get through is that we actually met Adette Mould, Harry's mother, and Lucy Connolly, Harry Connolly's mother, at a bereaved parents group, all in a similar situation with inquests and fears that things had gone wrong. And we were able to help each other, and we realised that we need to reach out to other people in the same situation so they're not mm. isolated and alone. Um, being able to um, talk to other parents who have gone through it gives a bit of freedom because sometimes some of the things you want to talk about and the details and the things are very very shocking for people who haven't lost a child or who haven't been through an inquest mm. process and sometimes you don't want to upset other people with all of the details but if you can talk to somebody who can handle it because they've been through it themselves it, it's helpful and the other thing we recognized is that there seem to be very similar themes with all of our children's deaths as far as um, feeling that our concerns perhaps weren't listened to or taken seriously enough, um, which is where the mother's instinct comes in. Um, and looking at communication errors um, within the hospitals or observation results that weren't responded to and things like that. So we figured that actually if, if parents come together who have been through these situations, mm. we can start really pooling together the common themes to look at ways that the NHS can improve simple ideas that could make a strong difference. As a parent, you know when something's wrong with your kid. We, had a, a you we had a little baby who was very ill. We took him to the doctor and went, oh, it's, it's, it's fine, just give him these yeah. tablets. My wife came out saying, I don't, uh, that's yeah. not right, that's yeah. not right. And we took him to the hospital and he had a problem with his kidney, yeah. which yeah. the doctor was like completely ignored. Yeah. If people want to get in touch with you, how, how can they do that? Well, what they need to do is um, they can go on www.mothersinstinct.co.uk um, and that so. will direct to a Facebook page mm as well which is again mother's instinct also if there are any parents out there that are experiencing this at the moment we are having one of our support group meetings on the 3rd of november mm -hmm. in hitchin um, and they can contact me on my email address joanne.hughes at mothersinstinct.co.uk for details give that address one more time joanne.hughes at mothersinstinct.co.uk joanne thank you very much for coming in thank you sorry it's such a, a, a sad story and i think even if you're not a parent you can't help but be affected by this and best of luck with the work that you carry on to do that's uh, joanne hughes there uh, from mother's instinct right cambridgeshire police are investigating complaints about the british national party 
party leader Nick Griffin after he revealed the address of a gay couple on Twitter and appeared to encourage his supporters to protest outside their home. He posted the messages after the couple successfully sued the owner of a guest house on the Buckinghamshire border who refused to let them share a double room just because of her Christian beliefs. Joshua Rosenberg is a legal expert. The first question is whether this is a breach of the Communications Act 2003. Uh, says that if you use a, a public electronic communications network, and that includes Twitter, and if you use that to send a message that is of a menacing character, that's a criminal offence. Well, Nick uh, Griffin has now had his Twitter account suspended after posting messages containing the couple's address and stating a British justice team would visit them. The MP Keith Vaz chairs the Home Affairs Select Committee. I think it's the misuse of social media to try and incite any kind of public demonstration in this way against individuals, private individuals, who have won a legal case and who are therefore obviously now the subject of this kind of activity, and I think it's wrong. A statement from the BNP says Nick Griffin would also defend the right of a homosexual BNP owner to turn away heterosexuals from their premises. It added that the BNP believes in freedom of speech and the rights of an individual in their own home. But the human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell says the police should take action against Mr Griffin. I think there's a very strong case that Nick Griffin should be arrested and charged under the Public Order Act because there is clearly a menacing tone to his uh, tweet. Um, it, quite clearly there is this threat and menace to come and visit the couple. Last night, Michael Black and John Morgan, the couple who were turned away, joined Roberto on drive time. When we got there, she sort of checked that we booked a double room with a double bed. We said yes, and she said it was against her convictions to allow us to stay. So I asked for the deposit back, which she gave me straight away, and we left. A Cambridge police spokeswoman said they had received a number of calls in relation to the tweets and were looking into the complaints. She also said that officers would visit the men mentioned in the tweets as part of their inquiries. I, I don't necessarily want to talk about the Nick Griffin sending those tweets. You can if you want, but it's not really what I want to focus on. I, I guess I want to ask you, should you have the right to choose what goes on under your own roof? Just have a think about it for a second. It's been proven in, in a court of law that this woman discriminated. Okay. But is that law wrong? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Andrew has uh, tweeted us. You can tweet at Ian Lee or at BBC Three CR. They both end up in the same place. Uh, this was a business, not someone's private home. Businesses can't treat people differently. Nick says no. You haven't got the right to say what goes on under your own roof if you run a business. Why should bigots be allowed exemption from the law? My Han says, if you're opening your home to the public and people are paying, it should be without discrimination. And Paul says, you can say what happens under your roof, but not when it's a business. Not when it's a business. Could a cafe say no to black people? Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, if you travel on Arriva buses, then from this weekend, you can expect to pay more to get around. A single fare on some routes in Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire is increasing by as much as 40 pence. The company says it's because of the rising cost of fuel and the government has cut the bus service operator's grant. Our reporter, Justin Dealey, has spoken to people in Luton travelling on the buses and asked them what they thought. Now, Ron, the people you've been talking to about this, not happy at all, are they? No, they're not happy, and uh, I think uh, putting the bus price up is diabolical. And for um, the journeys that they're making, it's so short, it's out of order. 
So you can see no reason whatsoever as to why they would increase the prices? No, I can't see any reason why they put it up at all. So it's not good value for money? No. Even now? Even now. Two stops, three stops. It's quite expensive. It is really. I think a lot of people will, will group together, if possible, and get a taxi. It's cheaper. If there's three people, it's cheaper to get a taxi, you know, rather than waiting for buses, which maybe don't turn up sometimes. How often do you use these buses? Every day. So clearly you're not very happy about the increase at all, are you? No, I'm not. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Because I've got to drop my son every day to school. It's not affecting me only. It's affecting the whole community. Whoever is paying for the bus fare, it's affecting them. So if you're using this every single day, you're probably looking at at least an extra £2.50 a week, aren't you? Yeah. And over a year, some will say, well, it's only £2.50 a week, but over a year, that built up. Yeah, I use £2.50 return every day. And just lastly, you mentioned about the community and how it affects them. Mm. Other bus users, again, are they equally as angry as you? Of course they are, because that's when you find that people don't come to town so often or they end up walking from wherever they're coming from to town. Their social life, actually, it will be cut off. They won't be coming so often to do their shopping or to do whatever they want to do, unless if they have to. So the knock-on effect could be that people could be walking the streets when they don't Mm. have to, Mm. and also business in the town, as far as you're concerned, that could suffer as well. Yeah, yeah, it can suffer as well, because people won't won't be coming to do shopping as they would have come to do shopping every day. That's Justin Daly speaking to bus users yesterday. Uh, Well, Lindsay Frostick is from Eriva. She joins me now. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning. Why are Eriva increasing the prices? Um, well, Dennis, you gave the reason at the beginning of the clip. Um, obviously, the cost of fuel is constantly going up, um, and this year has seen, um, you called it a reduction in the bus service operators' card, which is basically a rebate on the tax we pay on fuel due to the large quantity bus operators buy. There is a rebate against kind of the price of the pump, so you're not saying paying a similar price at the pump because when you're buying millions of litres, that, that, that's quite a lot of money. And that, and that um, rebate has been reduced. Uh, I bet you still get loads of Shell club card points, though, don't you? <laughs> if only we did, that'd oh, be great. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the people are upset by this. The, the... Yeah, we can appreciate that, absolutely. Um, and, you know, putting fares up is never a decision we take lightly and it's never something we do you know, enjoy doing, but um, with operating costs going up, um, obviously mm. fuel's a big one, um, cost of insurance, um, claims and things like that, all of that affects our business. Even the cost of energy, will, you know, gas and electric will affect our business like it affects others, um, and that does put the operating costs up. Mm. How much profit did you make last year? Off the top of my head, I don't know, as a company. Vague idea? No. Um, I don't think making a profit is um, a wrong thing to do. In fact, bus operators, operating commercial services have to make a profit. Of course they do. Of course they do. I was just wondering, Um, who's more important, making money for your shareholders or your customers? We don't have a... We're privately owned. We don't have shareholders. But it it would seem that the, the customers are being punished for this when perhaps there could be a little bit of compromise and you can maybe eat a little bit into the profits. Um, we are, the cost of our fuel we'll put is going up by about four million. So that's not what we're paying, that's what it's going up by. That's a considerable amount of money that we have to try and claw back. And we're not clawing it all back through fares, we are absorbing some of that ourselves. Um, and yes, there is going to be a little bit of extra money out of each of everybody's pockets, but regular losers, like the lady who uses it twice a day, um, our weekly and four weekly tickets aren't going up. Um, the other 
important thing is that you know we are investing in buses in mm. the town. Um, we've invested over two and a half million in across the region this year. It was over four million last year, and we plan to do a similar amount next year. Um, we're still recruiting. We're still offering jobs. So. Um, you know, there's there's lots of positives about the buses as well. Oh, of course, we appreciate it's not yeah. it's n- never great. You know, when people's ta- um, yeah. gas bill goes up, that's that, never great. That's six and a half um, million pounds over the last two years. How how will the customers have noticed that? What what changes will they well, have seen? Looting especially, they will have seen around twenty twenty eight new buses. Um, that's if you, you can't miss those. Um, in Hertfordshire, we've had new buses as well. So. That, that's a massive improvement. We've invested in new ticket machines, which over the course of the next 12 months will improve boarding times and the type of products we can offer so we can be more flexible. Still don't have audio or visual prompts for blind and deaf people? No, but that's being trialled, due to be, a trial is due to be rolled out in Milton Keynes. Obviously, it's been very successful in London, um, and we're parts of trials which will be rolled out in Milton Keynes because we can see the benefit of that. But if, it's been tri- if it's been trialled in London, you, surely you know it works and you can just do it, can't you? Because we've had, we've had a few uh, callers over the last couple of weeks saying that, the, the, the blind people saying that they struggle with the buses because the, the drivers aren't particularly helpful and there are no prompts to let them know where they are. Yeah, but you need the infrastructure for that to work. So you need the real-time information, you need the global positioning of buses to be um, fitted to all vehicles, um, and, that, and that is being rolled out across the region, Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire. So, you know, once that's in place, then you can start to look at what can you do with the, with the technology that you have on the vehicles, and that's why it's being trialled. Lindsay Frostick from Arriva, thank you very much indeed. 08459 555555. Now, last week we told you about how the Milton Keynes cows had turned into Milton Keynes skeletons. Vandalism or a work of art? Well, this morning we are going to reveal who did it. Justin Dealey is on his way to meet him. Last time we checked, Justin, you were at Toddington Services. Whereabouts are you now? I can tell you I am live in Milton Keynes uh, next to the concrete cows. After 7.30, you're going to be talking to Pie Waste, who is standing to my left-hand side. He is dressed up as a skeleton this morning. He's the man who's admitted to turning the concrete cows into skeletons early this month. Uh, The MK Parks Trust, they say they're not happy. £2,000 worth of damage. He says that he has a connection to the cows. You will find out about that connection and exactly why he's done it after 7.30. Fantastic. Thank you, Justin. Oh, picture Justin, otherwise it didn't happen. Okay? The BBC in beds, hearts and bucks. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. 7.33. Lots coming up. Do you have the right to say what goes on under your own roof? This is after uh, a Christian B&B owner um, was found guilty of discrimination yesterday for not allowing two gay men to share the same bed. Um, the law of the land has said she's wrong. What do you think? Right or wrong? 08459 455 555. Bedtime stories. It's down. We don't read bedtime stories to our kids anymore. I'll say it now. If you're a parent and you can't find the 10, 15, 20 minutes it takes to read your kid a bedtime story, you are a bad parent. I've said it. I've said it because I mean it. You, you, well, it takes 10 minutes, 20 minutes. If you, don't, if you can't find the time to read your kid a bedtime story, you are a bad parent. You are setting them up to be less imaginative, less creative. You're not bonding with your kids. Shameful. It's shameful. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number. Now, last week we told you about the mysterious appearance of skeleton designs which have been painted on the famous concrete cows in Milton Keynes. 
keen to know, do you think it was vandalism or was it a work of art? You know, did they need a bit of a revamp? 81333. Start your text. 3CL this morning. We're going to reveal who did it. His name is Pie Waste. And he joins me on the line now. Good morning, Pie Waste. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of go, aha! Thank sorry. you very much. You, well done. No, sorry. I, I don't know why you did it, but good work. Why, why the name Pie Waste? Uh, well, my nickname's Pie, and yeah. I'm li- living in a bit of a wasteful society, unfortunately. Are, are we all guilty of this? <laughs> no, I don't know. Well. Uh, uh, why, why did you vandalise the cows, Pie Waste? Come on. Uh, well, I didn't vandalise them. I simply restored them. Um... My dad built the herd that's there originally, and since I was a kid, I'd been helping him restore a lot of public art that he built in in Milton Keynes, and, um, yeah, I literally gave him uh, a new life, shall I say. So, hang on a minute, you're the, the son of Bill Billings, are you? I am indeed. Then why are you using the pseudonym Pie Waste? I could probably Google what your real name is. Uh, because... No, no one calls me Ryan. Oh, OK. calls me Pie, and, and uh, okay. as well, at sh- uh, first, um... When I confessed uh, that you know that was a name on my on my Facebook, yeah, and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. Oh, yeah. I wasn't sure if the authorities were going to come and get me straight away. Uh, so is, give them a bit uh, of time to work it out. Are the yeah. feds after you, Ryan? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Maybe. Okay. I wasn't sure if I was going to get set up this morning. Actually. Oh, we're not going to set you up. We're not. Gonna, <laughs> but you know, if the police do ask for your details, we have to give them to them. I'm afraid. Yeah, I'll, That's I'm the law. Are you, is it true that you're leaving the country for a bit to to get away from the heat? Uh, no, not to get away from the heat. Just to get a bit of sun. I, I mean, I spent a miserable winter here last year, and I, I kind of want to head south. It's only for ten days, but where about to go? Uh, Spain. Ah, oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, why? Why did you paint the cows, Ryan? Uh, because they were falling to bits. The paint flaking off they were, uh, they already had tags all over them so i just simply went down there and and sort of revamped them up you know do you think it's cuz listen they are they are uh, you know kind of national treasures to a certain extent uh, do you think uh, that milton keynes council have let the side down a bit by letting them get so you know dirty and messy and and, and badly treated yeah i guess so i mean i, I had i've been applying for quite a while to restore quite a few of my dad's things the the, the first statement i made was uh to repaint the the dinosaur which was like literally vandalized to bits it it was smashed to bits like had holes in it where kids been chucking bricks at it so i simply sourced like materials and people from you know from the community donated me like cement and stuff i went down there made a dry mix and i literally um yeah fixed it and then gave it a new fresher paint it, it, Ryan, it sounds like you, you're putting a lot of thought into this. You're not just your, your, your casual tagger. But some people would still say it's casual vandalism. Uh, what, what, I know, what, what? I, I know all the street language, Ryan. You, know, you can't get one. But I know what tagging is. Yeah, well, I didn't put any writing on it, did I? No, and that's what. If you listen, that's what I said. I yeah. said that I was kind of on your side for a second. Yes, yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> not so much now. Uh, you're putting a lot of work into it, aren't you? Um, well, ha- well, not really. It only took me like a few hours in total just to do like the toe stools, the pear tree dinosaur, and the cows. You know, not 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 as much time as it is taken to get through to the council and actually get it done. You know, I, I can't keep going to meetings and meetings and wait another few months just just to go to another meeting and talk about them being painted when I just thought, you know, I sourced the materials and just did it. You know, I don't want to be Milton Keynes forever, so I just needed to do this and get it over with, and then... Listen, maybe, Ryan, the, the council so. are very upset because you have been a naughty boy, and they say it's going to cost £2,000 to paint them back. Well, how, when I did free projects with nothing? Well, are you, are you, why don't, are you going to paint them back for free? Uh, if they give me the materials, yeah. Will you? 
Yeah, of course I will. Well, there we go. Well, that's what that's sorted then. I if mean, we could, if, they, if they give you materials, you'll paint it back for free. Yeah, we definitely. Go. I'm ha- more than happy to. I did that anyway, didn't I? Yeah, but you'll paint them back to cows, not skeletons. If that's what they want, yeah. But this time I'll paint them different. I'll make them look better. <laughs> There's been <laughs> there's been a lot of public reaction about what you did, uh, and, and some of it's quite positive. Yeah, I mean, even the original artist Liz Lay, she she emailed the citizen saying that she she loved loved it, and yeah. she's like more unhappy for the you know for this new revamp to kind of stay like that, and um, you know, and they actually you know because they've been vandalised so much over over the years, they've lost their original shape, obviously, and the, and the skeletons actually hide the awful silhouette of them. And, mm. You know, they look ironically. They look more alive than ever. Well, Ryan, we—I've uh, got something to reveal to you. That Justin, who's there holding the microphone, is not actually a reporter. He's a copper, and you're nicked, sunshine. Sweet, <laughs> sweet. Bed and breakfast. There we go, Ryan. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Ryan Billings, the son of Bill Billings, the uh, the uh, one of the community artists who created the concrete cows. There. What do you think? Has he done a good job, or is he a very, very naughty boy? Oh wait, four five nine four double five five double five. We're asking about bedtime stories as well. When do, when do you? Uh, how often do you read bedtime stories to your kids, Johnny Letchworth? I read to my three-year-old every night. Um, oh, here we go, Dave. No, listen, I'll have this, Dave. I'll take this. I don't think I read to my kids when they were young, but I did tell them stories every night, which they always ask more. No, that's just as good, I think. But reading is good because it, it helps them read, I think, a bit. But no, my little boy sometimes says, I don't want a book tonight, Daddy. Could you make up a story? And my stories always involve him and his brother and the Queen and a helicopter for some reason. I say, who do you want in the story? And it's always him, his brother, the Queen and a helicopter. There's only so many variations you can do on that story, really. But I, I've, I'm having a pretty good crack at it. I've got a few variations that I like to throw into the mix every now and then. 08459 455 555. How often do you read bedtime stories to your kids? And if you don't... If you don't have that time with them, reading or making up stories, you're a bad parent, aren't you? Why don't you do it? It's such a joy. It's the best part of the day. Because generally, they're focused, they're attentive, they're a little bit sleepy, they're, uh, th- th- they're paying attention, they're at their cutest. I mean, they can still be a little bit naughty. But, you know, it's, it's the best time of the day. If you don't do it, then you are a bad parent. Simple as. You are setting your child up to have no imagination, to have uh, no creativity. It'd be a little bit dumb. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give me a call on that. Or you can text 81333, starting your text 3CR, uh, or you can email 3CR at bbc.co.uk. We were talking earlier on about the bus increases, the fare increases on Arriva buses. Uh, Peter is in Milton Keynes. Good morning, Peter. Yes, good morning. I believe you're a member of the Milton Keynes Bus Users Group. Is that correct? I'm actually the chair of the Bus Users Group. Is, is, sir, I'm standing up and I'm saluting you. <laughs> uh, didn't we realise we had someone so important on the line? Oh, uh, don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you make of these increases? Well, we just had our AGM a few days ago, and we had um, the, the managing director of Arriva Shires, and that question was raised about the rising of the, of the, yep. the, the fares. Uh, obviously, we were all a little bit concerned about it. It's another sort of nail in the coffin of spending money. Mm. However, you know, we were given a very good um, view of, of the problems that Arriva or any bus company have at the moment. 
one thing we didn't realize is that they have to take the bus any bus off the road every five to six weeks whereas we would do an mot or a service once a year yeah they have to do that every six weeks costs in that area have gone up and of course the, the uh, bus service operators grand which is uh, um, a, go- go- a government subsidy has also been reduced by about 20 percent mm. so really they he, as he said it's something they don't want to do they're trying to keep the status quo because they obviously have to keep uh, earning enough money to build, buy new buses and so on and so forth. So I went from being a cynic to being someone who, in practical terms, understood the, the problem. They have tried, I think, uh, and I got that very strongly from him. Uh, I felt he was a very honest person. That um, they've tried to minimise it to the lowest level that they can. Do you do you uh, listen? I use the buses all the time. It's my yeah. favourite form of transport. I love it because you get to Likewise. see so much. You get to to see such wonderful people and great views. Uh, but do you worry, Peter, that these increases um, will put some people off? travelling on buses because some people do say buses are quite expensive as it is well it's interesting because uh, here in milton Keynes, we've had an increase of about 11 percent in bus usage yeah because i think what people are realizing is if they take their car out there's all the costs of you know fuel in themselves and also insurance and so on and so forth so yeah. I, i'm noticing that people are they use the word multimodal they're moving to a new modal form of transport that does help, I think, in the long term, because the government is all very strong on this thing called sustainability, mm. cutting down carbon emissions and so on and so forth. Um, what we are seeing generally is, is this increase. So I think it's a, a, it's a very difficult area, isn't it? It's, mm. You've got to make that decision. It's a whether, balance, isn't it? It's a balance. And uh, I think, yes, having to pay more for your fares is something that is not very palatable for all of us. But, but, but perhaps we have to do it. Peter uh, in Milton Keynes, who is the chairman of the Milton Keynes Bus Users Group, thank you very much uh, for that indeed. We've been talking all this week about elderly care, with councils having to cut their budgets. What support is there for the older population? For those with Alzheimer's, there are therapeutic singing sessions, otherwise known as singing for the brain. Research shows that singing helps them communicate, and even if they can't speak very well, they are able to sing. Our reporter Tony Fisher went along to a session in Aylesbury. Jane Dalloway, you're the facilitator here. I am. Tell us, what does it bring for the people coming here, the people with Alzheimer's dementia? What does it bring? What does, how does it help them? Well, we've had a lot of feedback over time about when you have a diagnosis of dementia... Um, you find yourself very isolated. Friends that have had many for many years often find it very difficult to relate to you, and sadly, friendships can fall away. So, a big part of belonging to any group is the fact that they can actually um, make new friends and be in what we call a peer support service. Um, but it is more than just a sing along because it taps into the emotional side of your brain. We actually have observed people who are struggling with their speech. They are still able to sing. Bronnie, tell me about singing for the brain, coming here, these sessions. Well... Do you love, do you really enjoy singing, don't you? I, I do. Well, I, I, I'm a prof- professional singer, actually, in my earlier, uh, earlier days. And uh, so I've, I've always been singing. I, I love coming. I, 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 wait, I wait for today to come. John, what is it about the, the sessions coming here singing? What, what do you like about it? Well, it's mainly the business of singing because um, 
most of what I suppose I listen to the radio a lot, but I'm hearing loads of voices, which is all lovely stuff, but it's not as good as singing. Nothing quite equals the business of singing. And the only way to do that is to sing. And this is just a good place to come and do it. My name is Gladys. When everybody's together, it's lovely. Bit lonely at home. I look forward to coming. Having a good old natter with everyone. <laughs> Have you got a favourite song? All songs are good when other people are singing, when there's a choir, people round about singing, it's lovely. Tony Fisher there reporting in Aylesbury. Well, Shadow Health Minister Jamie Reid joins me now. Good morning, Jamie. Morning. Uh, do you agree with the government government's approach to tackling elderly care? Well, there isn't a huge amount of actual uh, detail in their approach right now. What we are going through in this country is a, what we can see happening in this country is a looming crisis with mm. adult social care. Um, there's been a review, uh, the Dilnot Review, which looks into the future of adult social care. That's recommending that we cap uh, social care costs. Uh, government's yet to implement that. Government's yet to, to say that it's going to cost that and bring that forward. And for the opposition, for the Labour Party, we see that review as... A very important and a very welcome first step, but we don't believe it goes anywhere near far enough. Let's just cl- cl- clarify what, what Dylan is. Is that saying that, that when it comes to social care, that the person would be responsible for the first £35,000 and then the state takes over? Is that correct? That's correct. Right, because at, at the moment it's the person's responsible until their savings fall below, I think, 23000 isn't it? That's so, right, yes. OK, well, and you don't think that's good enough? No, we don't think it's good enough. We think, I mean, we're an ageing society, we're an ageing population, mm. people living longer, and we should be, uh, actually, we should celebrate those facts in many ways. What we do need to do, though, is recognise what that means for the state and what that means for the private sector, what that means for the individual, most of all, what it means for the services that we currently provide. And what we think the answer to this is, is yes, still not, the do not review and the capping of social care costs is an important first step. But what we really do need to do is integrate adult social care, the National Health Service and other, other services that people receive so that there's a, a system around the person, a whole system of care around the person. It's not a, a fairly shambolic, fairly fragmented system as it is right now, whereby people fall between the various stools of um, social services, the National Health Service, the GP, etc., 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 as it is right now, it's not a good system. It doesn't provide the best levels of care possible, and that's what we want to move towards. It's going to cost a lot of money, isn't it? We're all getting older. We're all living longer. Where's this money going to come from? Well, we've got to look at this. We've got to. What we've said we're going to do is we're going to have a, a line-by-line public spending review and uh, examine exactly where we're going to get these costs from. But I think there's two ways we can look at this. We can either say, as we have done for a long time in this country, and all political parties. Uh, have done. We can put our heads in the sand and say, oof, that's too difficult, put it in a too difficult to manage file, it's going to cost an awful lot of money. Or we can examine the detail and we can look at what we need to do in order to provide the best levels of care possible for people who have, let's face it, paid their taxes all their lives and for many of them, once they get to uh, the situation, the position where they need adult social care, even if they do sell their home and even if the, the social care costs are capped, what they do get isn't adequate and isn't as good as what they get in many other countries. Is it, Jamie, it's all very well and good saying this when you're in opposition and you haven't got to find the money, but why didn't Labour do this when you were in power? I remember we actually did uh, bring these ideas forward just before the general election, and they... We but you had, like, I, I don't know, how long are you in power for? 15 years? 13, or 13 years. 13 and, and years? That's a completely fair criticism. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't demure from that criticism at all. What we did do was we put uh, an awful lot more money into adult social care. Uh, social care and, and care for the elderly got an awful lot better under those 13 years of the Labour government than absolutely... Uh, 
no question about that, and I'm very proud of our record in many ways, but this issue wasn't resolved until the final, sorry, wasn't approached until the final year of the Labour government, and you'll remember, this was castigated, this was called the death tax, this was called, um, the, the Dilmot Review and the principles within it were absolutely uh, excoriated by David Cameron and Andrew Lansley uh, in opposition uh, for cynical party political purposes. So we're well aware, we've got the scars on our back of how difficult this is, but we're not flinching from it. We know we've got to address it. And this isn't the ordinary business as usual opposition. But the Conservatives are addressing it now, aren't they? No, they aren't. What they've done, <laughs> what they've done is a typical sleight of hand, which is a common to almost every other policy area, yeah. in that they've said that they know this is a difficult issue, they know this is an issue which is going to cost a lot more money, they've brought forward a, uh, a, a white paper, there's no costs in there, there's no timetable in there, there's no money in there. It's smoke and mirrors. We were in cross-party talks with them, and we believe this is far more important than the kind of uh, party political knockabout, which, you forgive me, we're having this morning. We mm. think this is far more important than that. We think the people on the sharp end of receiving these services deserve better than business as usual from politicians. Jamie so, Reid, we have to move on. Listen, thank you very much. Shadow Health Minister Jamie Reid, thank you very much indeed. It does... It, it, these, I, I, these things do annoy me. Why can't someone just make a decision? Because this won't get sorted out for years, OK? Why doesn't someone just make a decision? Why doesn't someone go, yes or no? Yes, we'll do this. We'll find the money. Yes, we'll do it. No, it's not going to work. We're not going to do it. Next. Instead of this, dragging it out and dragging out, and and Jamie, you're right, you had 13 years to sort this out. 13 years in power. And you brought it in just before the general election. Not brilliant, is it? And it looks like the, the, the Conservatives might be doing a similar thing. Just yes or no, please. It's all we want. Now, it's a year on since the eviction of 80 travellers from Dale Farm in Essex. You'll remember, it was all over the news. Protesters are now planning to come together at the Department of Communities and Local Government offices in London this afternoon. Elby Culligan was evicted from Dale Farm and since then has been living in Luton. Elby joins me now. Morning, Elby. Good morning, God bless. Uh, What's your life been like since you were evicted? Um, pretty bad, really, because I, I feel like I haven't got a home. Be honest. Where are you living? I'm living in Luton at the moment. Uh, but whereabouts in Luton? Are you sharing with friends? What? Um, I'm staying in my aunt's place. Okay. But you didn't technically have a home before, did you? Because you were camping there illegally. Yeah, but technically that's not the way it was. Right. Because we were told that we weren't allowed to travel anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you take us away from that, they told us, well, I'm sorry, but you travellers just can't travel anymore. So to Hold on to our roots. We thought, well, okay, then. We stay in our caravans. Have you anywhere to put us sites or anything? And they said, no. So then they said, if you buy your own land and build on it, that'll be okay. Mm. So we bought something that was, it wasn't, nobody would live there. Mm. It was a scrapyard. And at the time that we bought it, it was actually brown belt land. And when we bought it, we fixed it up into our own home and lived there. And then that wasn't good enough. Well, you weren't, allowed, you weren't allowed to build on there, were you? And there are, uh, 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 there are rules, aren't there, about where you can build and what kind of buildings you, c- you can put on certain land. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. But unfortunately, for us to put in an application beforehand, they would have said no immediately anyway. Because so you just went ahead and did it? Yeah, so we just... And it's not like we built massive houses. We didn't. We put a bit, a bit of fencing hmm. and a bit of gravel on scrap land. That had it didn't have flesh and green grass. It didn't have running animals running out through it. This was a scrapyard full of broken down cars. Elby, what's Nobody your what's, there. what's your life like at the moment, Elby? Um, my life at the moment is okay. Yeah, it's okay, but it's 
I'm, I'm departed from my family. We're all scattered all over the place. My friends is all over the place. We're just scattered. That must be hard. That is very, very hard. You, because go on, our, our life is our community. Mm. You know what I mean? Everything is, we're always together. You know what I mean? We all always look out for each other. We're always together. It's our community. And Tony Ball just basically ripped us apart. Mm. The protest that's happening today, uh, have you got friends and family who are going to it? Yes, I have. What yes. are they hoping to achieve today? Um, just to show the world that what he did was wrong and that we got nothing out of it. It's not like he, he told us, well, okay, then I offered you this and he offered us nothing. Mm. He offered one house between 86 families, one house. And you he see- didn't offer us a land swap. He didn't offer us nothing, nothing at all. So you, are, mean, you, are you saying that none of the people who were evicted from Dale Farm are, are living the lifestyle they want in caravans somewhere around the country? Half of them is, 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 is living on people's doorsteps, right. basically. Friends just staying there hoping that, that they can actually one day find somewhere to go because there's still no fights for nobody. Half the people, well, most of the people that was evicted is still on the roadside of us. LB Culligan, uh, evicted from Dale Farm last year. Thank you very much. Talking about the protests that will be taking place um, outside the Department of Communities and local government offices in London this afternoon. Thank you. Eight o'clock, bang on the nose. Last hour of the show, and then my weekend starts. We've got a harpist coming in the last hour. How cool is that? Going to be playing live in the studio. All of that and more... Morning, Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. I've had a very offensive message, private message on Twitter from a friend of mine picking me up on the way I say milk. What's wrong with the way I say milk? I say it properly? It's you that doesn't say it properly with your milk. Coming up in the last hour of the show, before JVS at nine o'clock, concerns over standards of care at Milton Keynes Hospital after the death of a child. A gay couple were discriminated against by a B&B owner. Do you have the right to say what goes on under your own roof? And we now know who changed the Milton Keynes concrete cows into skeletons. Is a bloke called Ryan. We'll find out what the Parks Trust is going to do shortly. BBC Three Counties Radio. very sad story. Milton Keynes Hospital has been ordered to review the care given to seriously ill children following the death of a one-year-old girl. But the hospital says it's already made changes. Yesterday, a coroner called for action to reduce further risks in the paediatric units where Mia, uh, sorry, paediatrics unit, where Mia Elcock died last October. She was admitted with breathing problems and was later found to have an extremely rare heart condition. Our reporter, Jessica Cooper, spoke to the medical director, Martin Wetherill, after the verdict. The coroner made some comments um, on what was pertaining at the time of uh, Mia's death. Much of that um, has changed. There's been a huge amount of money uh, and effort uh, put into the department in, uh, since January. Over three-quarters of a million pounds been spent on it, improving the nursing with updated uh, uh, monitoring equipment for um, high-dependency beds, which means that those beds are available for very sick children, complete with full monitoring, one-to-one nursing uh, and uh, an intense uh, uh, input from the uh, medical staff. Um, We've opened a a children's accident and emergency department as part of our main A&E and is about to go 24-7, so it'll be open the whole time. We heard during the evidence about the high-dependency pathway, which 
um, has been developed as a result of the death of Harry Mould, also in the paediatrics unit. And some of those conditions were, when a child is placed on that pathway, the on-call consultant is informed, the, the appropriate forms are filled in, in the notes... And one of the witnesses said usually the high-dependency children would be on a heart monitor. Mm. We heard that in Mia's case, none of those things happened. Do you feel that that pathway is working? Um, I think the pathway is working. And, and when a child or indeed an adult is ill, the, the, the first priority is obviously to the patient and, and to do the, the paperwork later. And I fully accept that the paperwork in this case wasn't done. We heard from the experts, the cardiologists, uh, paediatric cardiologists and the paediatricians that a heart monitor in this particular case would not have been helpful. But each of those beds has on the wall uh, a full uh, monitoring equipment, including cardiac monitors. I appreciate that, but... You make changes so that they're followed, and if they aren't followed, what's the point of making the changes? No, well, that's one of the points that um, HM Coroner made, and that is one of the points that um, we should be looking into. But I, I would like to stress that the treatment that Mia had did not divert, divert in any way from the uh, high-dependency pathway we've got. About the, the Rule 43 that the coroner um, instigated, he said that he'd requested that the chief executive carry out a review basically to prevent further deaths. So what will you be doing now, now that he has instigated that? All of these sad uh, experiences uh, give us an opportunity to look and to learn and to improve. And we will be looking at any gaps uh, that we, we identify from the Rule 43. But I would reassure everyone that a lot of the things have already been uh, put in place mm -hmm. and are corrected. Jessica Cooper there speaking to Medical Director Martin Wetherill. Well, it's not the first time that the paediatrics unit has been criticised. Five-year-old Harry Mould was treated there in 2009, and a coroner ruled neglect contributed to his death. Adette Mould is Harry's mum and joins him on the line now. Good morning, Adette. Morning. How do you feel hearing the outcome of Mia's inquest? Um, it angers me a little bit, and it upsets me. Why, um, why does it anger you? Because the amount of fighting that me and my husband did to ensure that there would be no deaths or um, problems in the paediatric unit. Again, it took us a long time to fight with the hospital to get them to admit the mistakes they made and for them to put in place procedures that they say they put in place. Um, to hear that those procedures aren't being followed, and I don't necessarily think it's the actual procedures, it's, it's the fundamental problem, I believe, is the people that are supposed to be following those procedures, they're not doing what they should be doing. And it's fair enough for Martin Weverall to say paperwork isn't being filled out, the priority is the patient, but the problem that parents like myself and Lee and Kirsten and Simon have when we're coming to try and tell the hospital the errors that they've made is that they haven't got paperwork to show what we're trying to say. So they've got no paperwork to back up them saying that they've done certain procedures so it's all well and good them saying they're not you know they can't fill out the the notes and things like this because they're trying to concentrate on the patient but that's not the case the notes are really important there has that's to be some record doesn't picture. there yeah of course there does there was such an so many missing records with harry's case and it's you you can't get a proper picture of what's happening and then all you've got is somebody's word two and a half years down the line trying to remember what they what happened on that particular day and it's not good enough they need to be investing their money that they say they're investing on people and staff 
and training. Why do you think, this is the high dependency pathway, isn't it, that was, that was developed following the death of Harry. Why do you think this high dependency pathway isn't being followed? I have no idea, but I think in this sort of field, you can have all the training in the world, but it sometimes boils down to the person that you are, whether you're going to be able to follow those procedures. I think it also comes down to feeding those procedures down. It's all well and good that the people at the top that, let's be honest, don't spend a lot of time at the hospital or aren't there as long as the nurses. Um, it's all well and good them knowing what they're supposed to be doing, but it's the people at the bottom, the nurses and the helpers, that need to know what these procedures are. Whether there's an issue with training, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the issue is, but there is an issue and it needs to be looked at. You set up the charity uh, Harry's Rainbow. Yeah. How has that helped you and other families? Um, we um, organise activities and, and trips for bereaved children and their families. We um, believe it, it helps to build up siblings' confidence again. I mean, it might be a sibling that's died, or it might be a, a child's parent that's died. Um, we just get all the families together so they feel safe in, in a safe environment where they can talk about issues regarding the person that's died without feeling um, alienated at all um, and just to create fun environments for children to enjoy themselves and build their confidence again because the, the confidence that children the knock that they get to their self-esteem and confidence in you know their life's been shattered by an event that they you never would have expected them to have to deal with until they were much older and we're just trying to build that that back up and it, it helps us to focus mm. and we're doing it in harry's name but it helps us to focus to try and help other people really and for them to not go through what we went through in a way well, you, uh, you lost harry when uh, he was five yeah I'm a, I'm a dad how do you get over something like that you don't mm. you you um you build up the resources mm. to deal with it day by day I know people think it's three and a half years down the line now and people think you're over it because you might laugh and smile a lot more than you did a mm. year or two ago, but it's still there, it's still raw. You don't ever get over it. And um, I wouldn't, you know, it's just not something you get over at all. Adet, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much. That's Adet Mould there, um, whose son Harry died three years ago at the age of five. It doesn't even bear thinking about, does it? Right, we're talking about uh, the gay couple that were turned away from a bed and breakfast. Uh, it was found they were discriminated against. Do you have the right to say what goes on under your roof? Shelley says you do, but not when under your own roof you run a and b business. Then you have to abide by the law. Esther has texted in eight one three double three, signing her text three CR. Ian, the couple who own that B&B should be able to say no to whoever they want, Christian or not. It's their home. Although the couple did offer the gentleman two rooms, so they weren't actually turned away. I know a B&B that do not permit, permit single-sex groups. Well, there you go. You, you're, not allowed to, you're not allowed to. Esther, you're not allowed. They're breaking the law. On a different note, she goes on to say, My sister reads a bedtime story to my nephew who is 16 months. He loves it. He chooses which books. Then when he's tired, he says bye-byes. It's very sweet. Of course it is. Uh, and Pam in Dunstable says, uh, A lot of B&Bs are often family homes, sometimes with young children. Of course they have the right to turn anyone away, Pam. Well, they don't in, in, uh, under the rule of law. They don't because it's a business. I'm not sure what the children has to do with it, Pam. 
Could you give us a call and expand? 0854, 08459. 08459 double five. JVS will be in in a few minutes. Uh, he'll be discussing this on his big phone-in at nine o'clock. He's asking, do you feel sorry for the Christian B&B owners? Uh, he'll pop in in a, in a couple of minutes and give us a little bit more detail on that. If you want to give me a call, we've got 45 minutes left of the show. It'll be nice to hear you. 08459 four double five five double five. A real mix of stuff we're doing this morning, including... Do you have the right to say what goes on under your own roof? And do you read stories to your kids? If you don't, I've got to say, you are a very, very bad parent. This is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. I'm uh, off on my weekend in 43 minutes. Yeah, you got uh, exciting plans? Well, I'm going to a haunted house tomorrow. Ooh. Y- yes, I know. Someone's <laughs> going to put the willies up you. <laughs> <laughs> is that part of the deal? Which is exciting. <laughs> and then, uh, very steady, there, you can be, listen, you can be as mucky as you want on, on your show. I don't want to lose my job. Uh, and then at the weekend... I don't know what you're talking about. Mm, uh, the, uh, at the week, uh, Sunday, very middle class, I'm taking my boy to a classical oh, I, concert. I heard this earlier. The London Philharmonic Orchestra. How luxury. I got to introduce them on stage once. Did you? And I jokingly, I said, this band aren't bad, they don't like being called a band. Well, they wouldn't. No, I thought I thought they'd have a sense of humour. No, especially not the, the the violin section. They took it very personally. No, they can be very snooty. The string section. Yes, I perhaps shouldn't say that because there's a whopping great big harp sitting upstairs in reception. We've got a harp coming I in know. at the end of the show. I love a bit of harp. Are harps part of the string section? They're probably not, are they? Well, they've got strings on. They have, but I I sense they might not be part of the string section. Well, they're not percussion. They're not wind. Perhaps they have their own section in the orchestra. <laughs> oh, posh. I'd like to be a harpist. <laughs> I'd like to be the man that does the, the cymbals. <laughs> I'd like to do that. That would be fun. What's happening on your show this morning, Jonathan? Well, on the big phone in this morning, we're, uh, we're going to be talking about this Christian B&B uh, yes. owner or owners, uh, the married couple that, uh, that run this B&B. Complaints about comments. The leader of the British National Party posted on Twitter in sympathy of a B&B owner who was sued by a gay couple are being investigated by police. Yesterday, Suzanne Wilkinson was fined three and a half grand because she refused to allow, allow Michael Black and John Morgan to share a double bed. Well, Nick Griffin posted these comments on Twitter, it would mm. appear, to uh, to try and whip up some sympathy for this couple and to say that people should go and protest, I understand. Put their address on. Yeah. That's the thing. Well, I want to hear your views from Nine. Do you also feel sorry for the Christian B&B owners? Do you think that they've been treated badly? Do you think the law is frankly an ass for for suggesting what it has suggested and fining this couple? Or do you think no? You don't feel any sympathy whatsoever. When you go into the hospitality industry, from time to time, you may get people coming to stay in your hotel or your B&B that you don't like, you don't approve of, whatever. But tough, when you go into the hospitality industry, it's your job to welcome everybody. Mm. 08459 455 555. Do you feel sorry for the Christian B&B owners? We'll discuss it at nine. I shall look forward to listening to that. Very quickly, what are you doing this weekend? Anything nice? Oh. No. Oh. I don't think I'm doing anything nice. Oh, that's so sad. I know. I might just sit, have a packet of crisps and cry. Jonathan Vernon-Smith from nine o'clock. What a, what a sad image. Yeah, <laughs> sad on so many levels. He'll be having a packet of crisps and crying this weekend. Uh, he'll be on at nine o'clock. You can send him an email now if you want to get in touch. 3cr at bbc.co.uk. Uh, the phone number for him is the same as for me. I would hold off... 
for 40 minutes or so before calling him. I'll hold off for a bit, but the phone number is 08459 455 555. You can give us a call. Let me know how often do you read bedtime stories to your kids. If you don't do it, you're a bad parent. You're a terrible parent. You're setting your children up to be stupid and unimaginative. Apparently only 42% of us read one bedtime story a week. I'm there every night. Gets two or three a night. It's, It's the best part of the day. 08459 455 555. Police are investigating comments made by the leader of the BNP, Nick Griffin, on Twitter, which appeared to call for protests outside the home of a gay couple. The comments came after Michael Black and John Morgan were awarded damages yesterday. A court had ruled that the owner of a B&B on the Buckinghamshire border had discriminated against them by refusing to allow them to stay in a double room. Well, Michael and John spoke to Roberto Peroni on drive time last night. When we got there... She sort of checked that we booked a double room with a double bed. We said yes, and she said it was against her convictions to allow us to stay. So I asked for the deposit back, which she gave me straight away, and we left. Uh, Well, Andy Wosley is from Stonewall, the lesbian, gay and bisexual charity. Morning, Andy. Good morning. These uh, tweets of Nick Griffin's, I don't know if you saw them, I saw them last night. He basically gave out this, he gave out an address, which purported to be this couple's address, and suggested that, um, that British justice protesters would congregate. What did you make of the tweets? Well, it was a very shocking thing to do, um, <coughs> excuse me, and I prefer rather to put myself in the shoes of the couple involved and just imagine what it must be like to have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people with your home address potentially ready to come and protest outside the front of your house. It was a shocking thing to do. Uh, and, and there has been uproar on, on Twitter. What, what do you think should happen to Nick Griffin? Well, that's a matter for the police, really, and they are taking this seriously, and I'd rather leave it to them. Okay. What I would say is that this does draw attention to the fact that gay people still face hatred in our society. Even in 2012, uh, of course, it's important for that to be tackled. Going back to the ruling, how do you feel about the couple's ruling? Well, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a superb indication of, uh, you know, a clear legal principle that we've had in this country since 2007, which is that if you want to offer goods and services to paying members of the general public, you can't pick and choose who you're going to offer them to. You certainly can't decide that you don't want to serve gay people just because you don't like the way that they were born. Uh, the, uh, apparently, she's the, the B&B owner has said that she uses this rule on heterosexual couples as well and, and, and says that it wasn't discrimination. It was discrimination against unmarried couples as opposed to their sexuality. Well, the, uh, the, the recorder in her, in her ruling yesterday was actually very clear that even if she hadn't found direct discrimination in this case, uh, a policy of only married couples can, can use the same bed is indirectly discriminatory because, of course, gay people can't get married. Mm. Andy, listen, we're going to leave it there simply because we have a terrible, terrible line. Uh, maybe we'll speak to you again at a later date. Thank you very much. Andy Wosley there from Stonewall, the lesbian, gay and bisexual charity. Sorry for the clicking on the line there. Sounded like someone was trying to send a Morse code uh, message. I had lots more I wanted to ask him. Maybe we'll, we'll get to do that uh, uh, at a later date. What do you think? The law has said that the woman discriminated, the couple discriminated, the owners of the B&B. But should you be allowed to do what you want to do under your own roof? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. If it's your roof, you can set the rules, can't you? Um, oh eight four five nine four double five five double five is the telephone number. Let's go to Michael. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Well, what's your take on all this? Well, I think the um, the person should have um, had the right to um, say whether they had um, them people there or not. I mean, they've got as much right as anybody else, I think, because that's their own house. If that's a hotel or anything, 
fair enough. But when that's their own house, they should have the option. But trouble is nowadays, they never get the option. That's just always the other way. And that's the same with, with children. I don't think same-sex couples should have children, neither. OK, we're going off on a slight tangent. The, 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 the thing is, it, 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 even though it was their own house, it was a business. So surely they have to abide by the laws of the land that dictate what can and can't happen in, inside businesses, don't they? Yes, but the trouble is all these do-gooders like Liberty and all that now are just ruining this country. You know, that, there's plenty of other B&Bs which would take them with no problem. I mean, I know a lot of gay couples and I've got nothing against them, but at the end of the day, that woman believed in a Christian person and, and she should have the right to say yes or no. But... It's not right to discriminate against anyone for whatever reason, colour, race, religion, sexuality, surely? Well, I don't call it, um, I don't call it that. I just call that woman having her say whether she, um, want to accept that or not. I don't think, um, Well, it is discrimination, isn't it? She has discriminated against them. Well, yeah, yeah, because the laws state that, but I mean, when the laws said, um, when they brought it out, they should have said, you know, you have the option to accept them or not. And that way, everybody would have been happy because they would have just found somewhere else, wouldn't they? Well, not not and everybody that... would have been happy because it would have still been a discriminatory law. Well, I'm afraid you're always going to get that, whatever, aren't you? I mean, you know, I must be a bit that way myself because I wouldn't um, want it neither. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, but, Michael, sure you'd appreciate that the law of the land has a greater ruling in this country than someone's religious beliefs? No. Why? Because I think a lot of the laws today are absolute rubbish. I mean, you can kill somebody today and be out in five or ten years, do you call that? Why do they say life when they give them ten years? That's not life, is it? I don't agree with a lot of laws, and I don't agree with that one. But so you, you, you think that we should pay more attention to religious beliefs than we should laws? Well, to an extent, yes. And I is mean, that just that, Chris, I when you say religious, do you just mean Christian? Yes. Okay, so so uh, women who are having their monthly cycle should have to sit uh, be a, a mile away from the city. That's that's Why? in the Bi- that's in the Bible. I wouldn't know about the Bible much. I just uh... Well, hang on. Hang on a minute. You just said we should follow religious religious rules. That's a religious rule. Or, or do we pick and choose the ones we like? No, I'm saying that lady is a Christian and her beliefs are that strong that um, she should have the right as well. She's got no right at all, actually, because the government say you ain't got no option. You're just going to have to do it. Yeah. We, we, can't, we can't condone bigotry, though, can we, Michael? Not, not in 2012, surely. We're, we're better than that, aren't we? Yes, we are. And the law should have been worked so... Both parties had the right to say yay or nay, and then but everybody would have been happy. But that's condoning bigotry. Well, I don't think that is. I think well, that, that is. lady, that lady's having her say, and she believe in what she believe in, and then gay couple are doing what they believe in, and just going to a, a hotel, what what accept it? Go go into a big gay hotel somewhere. No, not a gay hotel. I'm just saying a lot of people would accept them, no problem at all. But that just lady has got different beliefs, and I don't blame her for it. Michael, thank you very much indeed. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five is the telephone. It's tricky, isn't it? When you start saying, "Well, no, well, hang on," with the 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 rules in the Bible uh, should be stronger than the rules, the laws of the land. It doesn't work. 
Because some of the rules in the Bible are ridiculous. Was it, you can't eat shellfish on a Thursday or something like that. It's been a long time since I used to go to Sunday school and Wednesday club. I used to go there until I found out every story was about Jesus. And I went, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I see what they're doing here. On the Three Counties Facebook page, Helen Ward says, The Milton King cows, I like what's been done. They're much more noticeable now. You can have your say on there. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. 08459 455 555 here until nine o'clock every weekday morning from six jonathan vernon smith uh, will be up in about 30 minutes talking about this uh, couple that uh, refused to allow uh, a gay couple to spend the night in their bnb uh, they've been found guilty of discrimination ed is in luton hello ed hello ed what's your take on this uh, right can a pub landlord or a nightclub owner Receives you from coming into their club because above the door it says the their landlord has the right to receive admission. But is that not discrimination if he turns around and says, well, no, I don't want you in because you've had too much to drink? Well, no, it's not discrimination if they're drunk, no. Yeah, but, as I saying, so why can't they let the hotel or B&B landlord say, well, um, if they have the right to receive admission, then they... Ed, do, do, you want me to, do you want me to tell you this or do you want me to help you work it out for yourself? Because it's quite obvious. Well, I know the drink one is obviously people who are drinking think they're a bit rowdy. You got it, you got it. But yes, you could if yes, you if you go if you go into. I'll, I'll just clarify just to make sure you've got it. If you go into a bar or a nightclub and you're or a hotel or anywhere and you're drunk, then you could be causing trouble. Oh, yeah, okay, then. But what about if you go to a nightclub and he says the person says no, you're not coming. I don't like the, the way you're dressed, or I don't like the look you, or they just won't give you a reason saying, no, you're not coming in. I've never encountered... It's been a long time since I've been to well, nightclubs. I have, and I, and I know quite a few people... Why did you get turned away, Ed, from a nightclub? They wouldn't tell you. They just said, no, you're not coming in. Well, well we are. Then, Why they you, you could, then they probably are discriminated against you, yeah, and that's probably against the law. Well, no, because it says above the door that they have the right to receive admission. Yeah, but not on your uh, not on your sexuality or your religious beliefs or your colour. Yeah, how do I know it wasn't because of my colour or my sexuality? Because they didn't actually give me a reason. Did, did you ask them for the reason? The BNP could have just said, no, uh, sorry, we've got no room, you can't come in. Well, in that case, Ed, I suggest you could ask them, and if you feel that they did discriminate you because of your colour or your sexual practices, uh, you could sue them. And you'd obviously get a few grand. Both. So, is that what you said? Ed, I, nah. I don't know where this is going. I'm, you, you, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to help you out, Ed. Um, but there seems to be like a, a delay in your mind. Uh, Steve is in Aylesbury. Steve. Good morning, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. I'm looking forward to often, the weekend. Go on. I quite often get turned away from nightclubs because of the way I'm dressed, mate. <laughs> so, I, I don't quite know what the rules are. I, 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 no, I, no. It's not really discrimination, is it? I, I, because of the clothes. No, but you've got to look at discrimination. You've got to look at it. You know, travellers will book um, uh, places to have weddings, okay? Yeah. And they, and they, once they find out they're travellers, they're cancelled. Yeah. All right, now that's discrimination. Yes. This, this couple, okay, I'm a Christian. Right. Um, and I real feel for this couple because it does, you know, it's, it's not, we're not against gay people. It just says in the Bible, you know, and it says that, that man shouldn't lay with man. And that's just, we're just following what we're taught really. And, but it's not, it's not about the couple at all. It's about what they were doing. And that's just because of what we believe in. Well, what were they know? doing? 
Well, no, no, no. They, they, well, they, they booked a room together. Yeah. And you've got to see it from a Christian couple's point of view. Maybe the fact is that Christian couples shouldn't be running businesses like that. Now, that's an interesting you know, idea. That, that you, you know, could be right there, Steve. But you're also wrong. You know, you, you mustn't just attack every Christian that comes on the show defending that. I haven't what, done... What, what, what I people don't are, think I've done no, that, No, but I? you don't... No, you were a bit aggressive with the, with the, with the last guy. Well, I didn't know, um, was, I didn't, Steve, I didn't know if he's a Christian. He didn't say no, he was a Christian. No, 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 I'm, I'm just saying, you know, somebody that comes on to, to speak about... Okay, well, you have to be very careful what you say, because you said I've, I've attacked every Christian yeah. that's come on. Okay. I didn't know if he was all a Christian right. or not, so... All right, may, all right may, maybe you haven't done that, but you've been very aggressive towards people. But all, all I'm saying is that, A you person, know, in your it, opinion, yes. Just <laughs> want to clarify, a person. Okay, Not people. Right. You've, you're generalising no, a lot, Steve. Well, let's deal with specifics if you want to. Okay, all right. But you did say, you said about, um, in, you know, going back to the Bible, you said earlier about when you went to Sunday school, you found out it was all about Jesus, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that is right. That, you know, the Bible is all about Jesus all the way through it. No, I know. I, did, I didn't appreciate that as a young kid. <laughs> and as I got older and realised that it was actually a religious organisation that was indoctrinating me, uh, know, I, kind of, I kind of thought, Do you yeah. know what? I'm not having this. Absolutely. I agree with you. I hate religion. Absolutely hate it. I really do. As a Christian, I hate religion. That's what causes all the wars. That's what causes all the problems. You know, I, I believe in, in a relationship with Jesus, and that's that's my view. And I'm, you know, as a Christian, I, I I feel that you know that's my personal thing. And people quite often will say, "Oh, you know, you should know better. You're a Christian." Yeah, but I'm a Christian. But I'm still. I'm still a guy, you know, that, that does struggle to try and be a Christian. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and from my point of view, it's it's just something that if if um, and don't get me don't get me wrong, not not every church or, or um, uh, leader will teach necessarily the things that I believe in as being right. But you do get um, a lot of um, there is a lot of <laughs> rubbish. If you find a good church, they say leave because it's you know you'll you'll spoil it. But you know, Steve, this thing about following and listen, I've got nothing against Christians in the slightest. Of course, I haven't. Uh, and the, 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 the basic uh, the message of Christianity of all religions, you know, is hey, let's all love one another. I can I can Absolutely. dig that. But but if you're going to go by the rules in the Bible, then there yeah. are some pretty silly rules in there. I, I, yeah, or maybe so they you are can't, now. You but can't you pick looking, and choose. Like women, women having you, a period. Hold on, hold on, yeah. Yeah, you're looking at Old Testament, aren't you? Well, it's the, they're the Bible. No, no, no. Yeah, but what you f- what you failed to do was to continue with your with your Sunday school, where you moved into the new the well, new because Testament. Because it's, it's it's all the Word of God, the Bible, the New and the Old Testament are the words of God. You can't pick and choose. No, but you read it as a book, and the, a book works its way through a story until you get to to the end. We're not at the end yet. You've only started the story. But, but all, I, all I do is encourage you, read on and, and read the, yeah. some of the other story. Steve, I'm all right. No. Listen, I, I, life's too short, but thank you very much for that. But you can't pick and choose bits from the Bible. The bits, oh, I like that bit. Oh, I'm not so keen on that bit. That's a bit silly now. Paul's in Hitchin. Morning, Paul. Paul? Oh, no, you're there. Hello. Sorry, Paul, I had the yeah. wrong fader. My fault. I'm, I'm being a, a, an idiot this morning. What can I do for you, Paul? Well, I was just listening in, really, you know, taking it all in from both sides. I think that we people are just losing the point here where sensible sort of morals in life are just going out the window. In what way? Well, in lots of ways. I mean, you must see on a daily basis. I mean, what people for maybe 20 years ago, I mean, they would, you call them bigots if they say that, you know, that one minute they're sort of against this, you know, gay couple, you know, having 
that, uh, that is bigotry. Options. That is bigotry. Well, there's a lot of things in that grey area in the law where... No, it's not not grey area. I've got the definition of bigotry in front of me, if you'd like me to read it to you. Yeah, please, yeah. Uh, Bigotry, the attitude, state of mind or behaviour characteristic of a bigot, i.e. intolerance, obtuse or narrow-minded intolerance, especially of other races or religions. So it's intolerance, so yes, it's bigotry, by by the dictionary definition. Oh, right, Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's just that I feel morals are important nowadays, and I think we're losing them. We're losing the basics of morality. But, but, but give, give me an example uh, of where we've lost morality. Well, I, I was just talking to him when he researched a minute ago, and I said that what happens to this cu- couple, yeah. this Christian couple that's got this B&B, have got children themselves. And then they've got somebody over the, under their roof, and they walk into a bedroom unexpectedly, and they see, you know, something that they're not supposed to see. Now, where's the moral there? This family's got to be brought up. And I, well, you go, mm, you don't, well, well, you don't, things. first of all, there's several things wrong with that. First of all, it's a business. Second of all, if they're worried about having strange people coming into their home, then they shouldn't have that as a business. Thirdly, you're, you're, you're implying that the, that couple were definitely going to have intercourse that night. There's well, no, I didn't say anything. Well, no, you no. did. You said, you, well, you did. You said, said that the children, you so said... They might not have wanted to see, and that, that's not implying anything... Well, uh, well, what what, what might they have seen, Paul, that they wouldn't want to well, see if it's not intercourse? I, I, I mean, this is a family show on the radio. I mean, you don't want to see things that really... So, so those things of a sexual nature? Well, well, I don't know, but uh, their morals are going to be... They might have Christian morals themselves. They want their kids to be brought up in Christian are morals. You saying, the law's Paul, not going to debate to them, are Paul, they? are you saying it's immoral to be gay? I never said that. I'm all, asking you. No, I'm asking you the question. I'm asking you the question. The, you're pointing no. the political finger at me, saying I'm that if I do pointing, say that, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking the law. And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm one of these I'm small minority, which Paul. I think there's a large minority of us Paul. out there that Paul. actually. Thing like that. Well, can I, I'm not pointing any political, I haven't got a political finger. I've left oh. it at home this week. Well, right. I'm just asking you a question, yes or no. You're talking about morality, and I'm slightly confused as to why you are. Is it immoral to be gay, in your opinion? Well, that's quite, that's something that's very, very, if I was to say yes, how would that go down? Well, it, I, I'm just, I'm asking for your opinion. Yes or no? Well, no, I, I accept. I, 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 I I don't I've know why you brought up morality, so I'm trying to I'm trying to hone it in a little bit. Is it immoral well, to be gay? Yes or no? No, because you're going wearing off the subject here because it's a preference, isn't it? No, it's, I mean, not, watch, it's not. It's not I'll a subject. You brought up morality. I'm, I'm trying watched, to f- find out why. I watched um, Freddie Mercury last night, and that was quite an interesting journey on the, on how he came out of the closet at the end. And um, people from a different era will think differently. Okay, I mean, I'm just asking. This is why I'm asking. I'm just asking your opinion, Paul. Do you think it's immoral to be gay? Yes or no? No. Okay, fantastic. Thanks very much for calling, Paul. Okay, thank Good you. Night. There we go. Pauline Hitchin, 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call on that. Now, uh, we now know who turned the Milton Keynes concrete cows into skeletons. He's the son of the original artist Bill Billington. Uh, he calls himself Pie Waste, although we like to call him Ryan. The Parks Trust, which owns and maintains the cows, condemned the changes as vandalism last week, saying it was going to cost two thousand pounds to undergo uh, to undo the change. Bryony uh, Surgenson is from Milton Keynes Park Trust. She joins us now. Good morning, Bryony. Good morning. Uh, how long are the cows going to stay like this? Um, well, probably now that the weather's changed and it's gotten getting colder, it's getting wetter. They'll probably stay like they are until the spring yeah. um, we were intending to repaint them after halloween but i think with the weather conditions as they are it'll probably be there'll be a, a better result if we do it do it when the weather improves we know who did it now it's a lad who calls himself pie waste otherwise uh, ryan uh, are you going to press charges against him 
Um, well, we're in discussion with him at the moment. Uh, we've had contact with him. Oh, and, to him okay. um, yeah, yeah, and and we actually, interestingly enough, we spoke to him before they were done. He contacted us um, about a week before um, because obviously we've got lots of bits of public art, and he'd expressed yeah. an interest uh, in in helping us to. Um, do some maintenance work. And Why didn't you let we, him do any maintenance then? If he sounded like he well, wanted to, to, to tidy up his dad's work. Yeah, well, uh, we'd agreed to meet up with him, well, we'd agreed to get in touch with him in the spring when we were due to repaint the cows anyway, and uh, uh, unfortunately he was too keen and he wanted to get on with it himself, so... Uh, he's, he's done a good job, he hasn't he? He's done a good job, hasn't he? Well, I mean, actually, you know, in the case of the cows, the, the job was pretty good and it does look fantastic i'm not denying that but you know he also did the same to the to the pear tree bridge dinosaur and um that wasn't quite such a good job and obviously it's a bigger piece and you know he did it overnight and it was rushed you know so it you know, whilst the ca- and from a distance it looked great, right. but actually close up it wasn't. I've, got a, I've got. A, first of all, he, he's told us that if you give him the paint, he'll paint them back as cows. He's happy to do that. <laughs> so that, that, that's your two grand saved. You spent spent <laughs> what fifty quid on a couple of pots of paint. Secondly, why don't you give him some money and get and pay him to go round and redo all these works of art? And he can do it in the daylight, so he can spend proper time on it, do a cracking job. Wouldn't that be fantastic? What a great end to this story if you gave Pie Waste or Ryan. Uh, a few quid, and, and got him to, to redo his dad's work. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we're in discussion with him about, actually. We've uh, asked to meet up with him. He's going away for a few days, and when he gets back, uh, you know, that's what we've asked him to do, come in, have a chat with us. We talk about... Because there's not only those pieces of public art that need yeah. uh, restoration work, there's other pieces as well, and depending on his on his skills, you know, we might employ him to do there other work Just don't trick him, Brian. He's scared of the feds, he told me. He doesn't want to get them busted <laughs> by the feds. <laughs> don't get any feds involved, Brian. There we go. That story might have a happy ending. Ryan, I'm not going to call him that silly name anymore, Ryan might have a job out of this. Thank you, Bryony. She's from the Milton Keynes Park Trust. There we go. Oh, what a nice way to kind of head towards the end of the show. Harpist coming up soon. Harpist! I'm very excited. You may have uh, noticed, if you've been listening while I've been doing this this show, that, that, that on Fridays we kind of get a little musical guest in for no other reason than I like a little bit of music on a Friday. So we've got a cracking one for you in a couple of minutes. A cracking one for you. It's gonna be f- I'm very, very excited. But before that, we're going to speak to uh, Justin Dilley. Because have you ever wondered what it would like to age 20 years in an instant? Well, today, Milton Keynes MP, Mark Lancaster, will wear an age suit. No, I don't know either. It's as part of an initiative promoted by Age UK Milton Keynes. Uh, Justin Dealey is out there with the MP. Justin, what on earth is an age suit? What's going on? Ian, good morning. I have to say that uh, Mark Lancaster is standing opposite me right now. He looks like a criminal uh, in this suit. Uh, we'll find out exactly what it does in just a minute, but uh, up first, um, outside Blum here in Milton Keynes, I'm with Jane Palmer, who's from Age UK. You're working with uh, this massive local company here. Tell us why you're working with them. Well, we find that obviously people in later life have a a great deal of difficulty with mobility and flexibility as they get older. And even cooking in the kitchen can be difficult for them. And we discovered that Blum have this excellent suit that allows people to actually use this suit to understand what it means to be an older person. How dodgy does he look right now? (laughs) He does look as though he needs shackles. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Jane, thank you for your time. Um, Andrew's here as well, Andrea Helia. You're from the company which has designed this suit. Just tell us what this suit does, because both Ian and I are both very intrigued by this. (laughs) Well, we use the suit um, as a company in all our research and development so that um, we know that anything, any furniture that's made with our products inside 
are all inclusive for anyone who's older. Mm. So it means that if you buy furniture with our products in today, they will work as functionally and practically for you in 20 years' time. Right, so we're looking at 20 years here. If you put this suit on in a few minutes, it will age you by age 20 years. 20 years, yes. We've got bindings in the arms, restricts your movement, um, weights that replicate muscle density loss. We've got special gloves that make you feel like you've got arthritis. We have a helmet which affects your vision, special glasses and goggles. Mm, right, let's bring him into the conversation. <laughs> Mark Lancaster, MP for Milton Keynes, welcome to the show. You're in an age suit. Can you just describe to our listeners how you feel right now? Well, I'm not sure about 20 years older. I feel 30 years older. It's so draining. Just even the most simple tasks as to walk around or to raise your arm above your head, it's actually really very difficult. It's, mm. it's fascinating. I mean, I realise that this will come on naturally with age, but to have it suddenly imposed on you is a real eye-opener. Can you just bend down for me? I'll say that in the nicest possible way, okay? Because apparently by bending down, you can really feel 20 years older. Can you bend down for me? How do you feel now? I can, but I'm struggling to touch my toes. It's not the going down, it's the coming back up where you feel the full weight of uh, the suit. And um, actually, yeah, it really is quite remarkable. Try and keep it clean, please, Justin. It was before nine o'clock. Come on. We we are keeping it clean. The great thing about Ian Lee back in the studio, he doesn't need an age suit, you see. Some days he comes into the studio and looks a lot older. Just one final question for yourself, Mark. We have been talking extensively about the Milton Keynes cows this morning. Uh, We have discovered the man who has painted them, vandalised them, whatever you want to call it. What do you think should happen next? Well, they've been painted so often, I think we should embrace it. Um, I think we should probably use the cows now as uh, some form of outside art. I think people should be allowed to um, go and paint them. I'd like to do it in a controlled way, um, but I don't really think it's probably the best use of taxpayers' money just to repaint them every time this happens at a cost of £3,000. So it's going to happen. Let's embrace it. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. So outside uh, Blum here in Milson Keynes there with Jane from Age UK, Andrea from the company, and also Mark there. Very, very interesting, Ian. I think that mm. we'll um, have to come up here one day and try this suit on, because you've heard the words there from Mark. Oh. It's um, it's very, very interesting to, to find yourself suddenly 20 years ahead. I'm, I'm thinking, Justin, have they got two suits? Uh, have you got two suits? No, one of Oh, we'll have to share it, we could, we, we, I'm just <laughs> yeah. thinking maybe we could have a little race in the suits. Uh, actually, I'll tell you what. It's not a bad us, idea, is it? Because we are the BBC, can you create two suits and uh, Ian and I can go running 100 metres? They are worth 14,000. <gasps> oh, blimey, in that I case. Think, I think we'll leave it there, Ian. <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. Uh, a picture, Justin, otherwise it didn't happen, please. Yes, yes, no problem. And I don't know if you heard, but we just spoke to a lady from the Parks Trust. We may have got Pie Face, a.k.a. Ryan. We might have got him a job. Yes, uh, I spoke to him after the interview as well. He's very, very keen to work with the Parks Trust, and uh, whatever you say about the, the vandalism uh, slash artwork, he is a, a very, very talented boy. Yeah, excellent work, Justin. Thank you very much indeed. There we go. Now, um, as I've been saying, on, on Fridays, we just kind of like to end the show on a bit of a high to, to, to get you into the weekend. We do all these stories about doom and gloom and, and bits and pieces. We do lighter things as well, but just on a Friday. Thought it'd be nice if we just kind of ended things on a slightly happier note. So we've been getting musical guests in. And by the way, if you are uh, I don't want to say odd, because that's a little bit rude, but if you're a slightly left-of-centre musical performer and you'd like to come on the show, do get in touch with us, 3cr at bbc.co.uk. So far, we've had a ukulele group. We've had uh, a, a teenage barbershop quartet. We had some electric guitar. We had classical guitar. This week, we've got a harp in the studio. We've got Paula Tate. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. You've, <laughs> I, I love it. It was me the other day, so let's get a harp. I want a harp in, and we've got a harp. Yes. Uh, and you, and I, I, I have seen harps perform live. You forget, it, it's huge. How big is this thing, and well, how much does it weigh? It's six foot one. 
Wow. And it weighs 40 kilograms. It's a big beast. There's no getting on and off the bus with this, is there? You have to kind of plan your day around carting this about. You certainly do. And you need a very big car as well. <laughs> really? You You're holding your back. You've not done your back in. Have oh, you, as my a result. back, my arm, my shoulder, you name it. Why did you choose the harp? <laughs> I ask myself the same question. Yeah. You, you've really got to want to play one of these, mm. as you've already said. It, it, it's, um, it's, it's one of those instruments that's not easy to, to play, but it chose me. Right. I, I saw somebody play it, and I said, yes, that is what I want to do. It's just the most amazing sound when you play it. it I tell you, I'll shut up. We're talking in a second. Would you mind giving us a little burst? A little burst, yeah. Give us, give us something you fancy. Right. Is that little enough? Give, give, give us a bit more. Can you do <laughs> that? Would you like a whole tune? Let's have a song. Go Let's on, why not? A what a fantastic tune. sound. I'll have some of that. Thank you very much. Superb. How long does it take to learn one of these beasts? Well, unlike a violin or a, a, um, a trombone or something mm. like that, you can make a good sound straight away. All yeah. you have to do is like that. We're it in. sounds great. So in that sense, you can play Three Blind Mice very yeah. quickly, but, it, but then it takes about eight or nine years to be able to play it well enough. Wow. Can you do that sound where when people don't people go, right, let's just think back to five years ago and they do the <laughs> stuff. Can you do that? I can, yeah. It's called a glissando. Oh, it's got a term yeah. and everything. Why that makes me laugh so much? <laughs> that does make me chuckle. Uh, and uh, you've, you, I've got your whole CV here, and you've played for mm -hmm. kings and queens, and you played all around the world and in castles stuff. <laughs> I'm more impressed. You did a live performance on Crime Watch. What I was did. that for? Yes, well, it wasn't Crimes Against Harp playing. I have to say, <laughs> uh, there was a, a harp shop up in um, Oxfordshire that yep. had 21 harps stolen. Uh, wow, I know it's a specialised crime. It, it's very, very specialised. They never found the harps, um, but it was featured on Crime Watch, and I went on to play an example of one of the stolen wow. harps. How much does something like this cost? Well, how much do you think? Okay, it's a huge harp. It looks gorgeous. I, I don't know, ten thousand pounds. Oh, very well done. Yeah, you, you're absolutely. Is it ten there. grand? Th this was twelve. Right. Oh, okay. Um, and a pedal harp will start at about uh, eight thousand. Wow. Up to twenty. How on earth do you afford it? Well, it's like buying a house. You know, you start small and you work up. So my first harp just sat on my knee. Yeah. And um, then I had a slightly bigger one, and now I have one that's taller than I am. I've got a, I can't, I can't talk. I've, I've ordered a guitar, a 47-year-old guitar that's coming today. I, I, dare, I daren't tell my wife how much it costs, because she will kill me. Listen, we've got about 30 seconds left. Could you just play us something else, please? Okay. Well, this is for the people who are in drive time at the moment. This is Chasing Cards. Fantastic. This is
playing, Paul Lux. We're going to have the travel over the top of this. I think this is very apt. Uh, let's go to the travel now. Treat it with the respect it deserves. This is just fabulous. Isn't this wonderful? Beautiful. Uh, now, the A414, we've had a report that it's closed eastbound through Hatfield because of an accident and oil spillage between Bush Hill Lane, or Bush Hall Lane and Holwell Lane, and uh, that causing some uh, delays. There's only one lane running westbound along that stretch as well. The A10 very slow through Chesant from the turn for turn down to the A121. M40, the accident clear now between junctions 1A and 1 from the M25 to the Denham roundabout, but it's still queuing after that from the Denham roundabout to the Swakeley's roundabout. Uh, A1 queuing down towards uh, Sterling Corner, Sterling Corner to Apex Corner, where there was a lorry broken down, and delays of up to 15 minutes to trains through Biggles Wade because of cows on the line earlier on, and they, I'm told now, are gone. Russell Holding, BBC Three Counties Radio. Thank you very much, Russell. Paula, thank you so much for coming in. I have to gently fade you down as we go into the music for Jonathan's show. That was superb, Paula. Paula Tate, we will put her, her website details up on our page, our Facebook page, so you can find out. Let's go over to Justin. Have a nice weekend. This is BBC Three Counties Radio.